Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I stay in Edinburgh, so there's there's a, a couple of um. Everybody, before we get to the bruise, before we get to the bruise and the bars in Edinburgh, I want to say welcome, welcome, welcome to the next BTR stream. I am your host, Lev Polyakov, aka Levpo on Twitter. It is great to be back with my computer and my webcam projecting fully with all these knights behind me standing guard because we are going to be talking about feudalism today. What exactly is up with feudalism? Was there even this idea of feudalism that people talked about in the history books? Because I know it's a little bit contentious, but we have an amazing panel here for you tonight. Once again, if you have not subscribed, don't forget to subscribe right now. Do it right now. I'm looking at you. Do it right now. Why are you not subscribed? Anyway, we have uh, Alex. Uh, and Alex, you are in the uh, University of Oxford right now. You're getting your doctorate. We have uh, Rosie Parent joining us. And right now you are... Uh, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about your uh, current studies and before you have been studying the uh, Nordics. And we have Dr. Watson joining us uh, from the uh, University of Edinburgh to Ainge universities here i'm uh, happy to say we uh we, we have a great panel here and we also have a newcomer at nigel cars carlsbad if i'm pronouncing that correctly correct carlsbad it's from the carlsbad decrees of 1819 by metternich to suppress german student radicalism in the confederation Excellent. And we also have Carl, Cal, sorry, Cal Cruis, Crucis, Crucis joining us today. How are you, Cal? Doing fine. Thanks, Lev. And of course, my main man, Giovanni Panacietti. Bella, welcome, my friend. Great to see you here. And uh, so let's just get started talking about feudalism and everybody here. Uh, thank you so much for being here. But let's start with uh, Nigel specifically. Maybe it's Nigel... two introductions, though, Lev. Let's sure, sure, sure. Okay. People... So let's, uh, well, then with the introductions, let's go to Alex first and tell us a little bit about what brought you into feudalism. And then after we go through the introductions, we're going to go to Nigel to uh, take it away from the initial uh, initial thoughts. So anyway, take it away, Alex. Thanks very much. And thanks for having me on here, Lev. Uh, nice to meet you all. Um, yeah, my name's Alex, Alex Diamond. I'm a medieval historian doing my doctorate, as, as Lev said, at the University of Oxford. Um, my expertise is on England and Normandy in the central Middle Ages. I, I look at uh, the estates of the kings of England and the dukes of Normandy. Uh, property, that's landed property, is a fundamental part of uh, feudalism, uh, and we'll get to that Um later um i also uh, have a podcast um at hp history pod which i co-host with my good friend and colleague dave crowley uh, i think that's how you found me lev is that right that is right and i yeah. have a link for all the people who are uh, in the chat right now i am going to link to uh, your uh, wonderful podcast i've listened well, to several kind. episodes of it and uh uh, we need more of this uh, of this kind of work out there. There is it's, enough. It's Brennan just a bit circuses. of fun that we that we do during lockdown. It's it, you know, it, uh, as as I said, you know, uh, I'm a historian, so I can. We talk about medieval things, but we but we go beyond that and we try and sort of look at the past critically, but also have a bit of a laugh with it as well. well and I that's like me British, in a nutshell. Uh, I like the British saying, "Have a bit of a laugh." I uh, I appreciate yep. that a lot. <laughs> so here, over here in the chat, you could see I uh, just posted it right over here uh hold on let me uh let me scroll down well let me see why that is not being posted but anyway let us go to uh rosie rosie can you tell us a little bit about yourself oh, i posted in sushi bar never mind here it is btr chat here are the two links this is where you can uh this is where you could find alex's work and it's called the hit higgly higgly piggly 
history hodgepodge. The higgledy piggledy history hodgepodge, yes. And uh, the attractive one on the left is me. And then the other chap is Dave, my friend, who's let himself go a bit, to be honest. Interesting. He looks kind of like a wizard. And uh, (laughs) yeah. And, well, Dr. Watson also looks a bit like a wizard, but we're going to get to that in a bit. So, uh, Rosie, please tell us a little bit about yourself. So, I am a French-Canadian, and I did my bachelor in history and linguistics. I did my master's in Viking studies, and I'm currently doing my PhD in human studies and interdisciplinarity, which basically means I can do history and linguistics together. So, that's really exciting. Um, I'm essentially, I love Scotland, but I also do all kinds of things with Vikings. So I don't know what else to say. <laughs> no, that is perfect. And here I have uh, two links that I posted. So um, uh, Franco Ontario, wife, mom of seven. That is um, that, yeah. that, 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 that is amazing. And now you are a chicken mom as well, starting a hobby farm. And uh, that that is a beautiful thing. I would love to Very raise chickens trad. in the future. Very beige, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, this uh, psec.org link, this would link to, uh, this is an organization that you are in right now as well? Uh, I was a research assistant last semester, or a few semesters anyway. Yeah. So I, I we looked at uh, the Mitzi in Northern Ontario. So the, the French and the Indigenous population, which I am a Mitzi also. I also, have a, I also have a podcast. I don't know why I forgot that. But I also have a history podcast that I started two years ago. What is the name of the history podcast for the plug? History, eh? History, <laughs> oh, eh? Well, I think I, I like, follow uh, that, actually. Yeah, I've, I've listened to that. I, I like that it's the same as a farming A, that you just apply the Canadian <laughs> A to uh, all the different ones. So I'm going to search for that right now, uh, or you could send that in the chat. But let us go to, uh, I'm going to go to Nigel last because he's going to start off. But let me go to Dr. Watson. Uh, how many Sherlock Holmes references have you gotten since you got your doctorate? They they started even when I first started the PhD before I had the the the, the, the title, um, yeah. The, 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 but it's worth it, I think. Um, particularly staying in Edinburgh, um, where um, Arthur Conan Doyle studied and and lived. Um, it's it's very satisfying to be a an Edinburgh Doctor Watson. Um, I have. Uh, I uh, although I do stay in Edinburgh. I'm actually English originally, um, but I, I specialize in 14th and 15th century uh, Scottish medieval history. Uh, graduated um, with my PhD from University of Edinburgh in 2016, and I currently work at uh, or for the National Trust for Scotland at the Battle of Bannockburn Visitor Centre. So very much kind of. Robert the Bruce, William Wallace, all that, um, you know, all of the really popular <laughs> medieval um, Scottish history bits and pieces. And I blog as well, um, at the Night of the Two L's blog, which I think you can probably see written at the bottom of my um, thing because <laughs> because when I registered for Zoom, I didn't realize, I, I registered with the um, email address that I used for the blog and didn't realize that I would then be lumbered with the name of my blog at the bottom of my screen every time I, I go on Zoom, whether it's with, you know, other professionals or on uh, streams like this or talking to <laughs> relatives. So um, what is the uh, what is the thing that drew you to uh, this uh, subject of uh, medieval 
Ness and uh, knights and Sc Scottish knights in particular and all that. Yeah, well, I, so I, I come from and, and grew up in the northeast of England and um, Northumberland, which is I, I sort of the, the uh, village where I, I, I was born, um, is right on the border between County Durham and Northumberland to the northeasterly most um, counties in England. And Northumberland has more castles than any other county in the whole of the UK, largely, I think, to kind of keep the Scots out. Um, so my childhood was spent running about dozens and dozens and dozens of uh, these castles. So right from being a kid, um, I was I was always really into sort of medieval stuff. Um, when I went up to university, uh, for, I actually did undergrad and everything at um, at Edinburgh. Um, and when I when I went up in uh, September 2005, I decided I would do their sort of foundation Scottish history course, which actually took you. I think in theory it started in about 3000 BC or something. It's you know it started with kind of first people settling in the region. Um, and then in that first week, whipped through to kind of, you know, Roman settlement. Um, and I did it just because it was my first time in Scotland. And I, I, I thought, you know, I should seize this opportunity to have a look at some Scottish history. But the first two um, uh, lecturers in that course, the first one was a guy called James Fraser, who now actually works at uh, the University of Guelph. Um, you might know him, Rosie. Um, and the second lecturer was a guy called Steve Boardman, who eventually went on to be my uh, PhD supervisor. And they were just so utterly fantastic. They were so passionate and enthusiastic about it, but also so entertaining. They kind of really made it, you know, they, they didn't make it seem like we're looking here at people, some of them living a thousand years ago. They really sort of made... Um, they made it make sense and they made it seem really kind of vibrant um, and really relevant. And I was just hooked ever since. So it's it's their fault. James Fraser and Steve Boardman, that's, that's why I was pointing the finger at. Excellent. And uh, before we go to uh, Nigel, Cal, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? And we're going to have a conversation a little bit uh, later on with the contention that you have with Nigel, but we're going to get into that. And everybody, once again, please subscribe. I don't know why the chat is not showing up right now from YouTube, but I'm going to load up, load it up in the alternate way. But anyway, Cal, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm just a nobody um, without getting into any uh, biographical or personal details. I can get into more of the kinds of projects I'm working on in my own intellectual interest. Um, I've spent as an amateur uh, several years studying uh, patristic theology within Christianity, its development through both the Western and Byzantine Middle Ages and how that transforms into the early modern period. Um, one of my projects right now is working on uh, a recontextualization of the English non-jurors within uh, early modern ecclesiology. Another one of my projects is trying to reframe George Barclay's uh, philosophy um, within um, kind of reformatted Neoplatonic metaphysics about energies, uh, which has resonance with uh, modern questions about, you know, the, the state of matter um, and uh, quantum theory. 
but one of the things that I'm particularly interested in, and that's what brings me on today, um, was a recognition that there was a kind of an enchantment with the idea of the Middle Ages that happens simultaneously with a concern that liberalism had failed and it needs a new gloss, right? So the construction of neoliberalism often went hand in hand with an appreciation of um, medieval society, medieval political theory, and so on. So I've been particularly interested, especially in relation to uh, political theorists ranging from Carl Schmitt to Giorgio Agamben and how exactly medieval thought has, be, has been a source for developing and furthering neoliberal, um, you know, not only neoliberal ontology, what a human being is, what, what existence is, and sort of how that correlates to the market, but more, um, more specifically how um, these, these ideas are being resourced in a way that, you know, would strike pe most people as really strange. Usually when you think of liberalism, you think it as a rejection of medieval society, feudal arrangements, and so on. But you know there is actually something strange, um, strangely parallel between the two. So hopefully we'll get into some of that later. Absolutely. And last but not least, we have Nigel. Nigel, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then I would love for you to start this discussion about maybe certain misconceptions that people. Uh, tend to have about uh, feudalism and what interesting things you would add in here to start this conversation about it. All right. Well, I, my personal background really isn't interesting in the slightest. Uh, my intellectual interests, though, they involve primarily legitimism, counter-revolution, monarchism, and the history of conservatism in general, particularly in the 19th century. Its origins essentially in the the battle of the feudal aristocracy and the landed gentry against the rise of the industrial bourgeoisie, to put it in these Marxoid categories, I guess, which I'm not that big of a fan of. But well, let's dive right into this. Let's start with uh, feudalism. We talked about that before the stream started. This is indeed a very contested historiographic concept. Uh, the premier revisionist literature is uh, Susan Reynolds, Phoebes and Vassals, The Medieval Evidence Reinterpreted. Uh, because a lot of uh, historians like Mark Bloch, uh, Ganshoff, and George Duby, they had this idea of a overarching feudal system with a strict hierarchical pyramid of land tenures Whereas, of course, in reality, it was a much more horizontal system. You know, there was never like an absolutely strict um, hierarchy, like a pyramid or anything like that. Uh, in addition, a lot of people misunderstand uh, feudalism as being this uh, breakdown of sovereign authority or the breakdown of uh, the breakdown of monarchy into aristocracy or oligarchy, when in reality, in any like feudal conception of law the primary investor of all property please say that again because you are uh, you are you are fading right now so please say that again and i would also recommend that possibly using a cell phone may be the best thing because it's probably going to go in waves uh, uh yes uh, what about now uh, now it sounds good. 
Well, I was talking about how uh, feudalism is frequently misunderstood as the breakdown of sovereign authority. No, no. See, it's going again, Nigel. I highly recommend you got you got to bring your you got to bring your phone in. You got to bring your phone in, buddy, for this to be uh, uh, for this to uh, work, because right now the sound is just going away. But uh, G uh, before before we uh, open this up to the panel is Geo. This is really no, no, the sound is really bad right now. It's just going away. I'm happy going... to pick up the slack on this please, if you want, or indeed please, someone yes. else. I don't, you know, I don't want to butt in. And, well, uh, unless, and step on unless, because I know, I know, Geo knows a little bit more about what the kind of stuff that Nigel talks about. So while Nigel is fixing his phone, I was wondering, Geo, would you be able to step in and kind of voice for him certain things well, that been, he? Uh... It's been a while, but I've known uh, Nigel for many years. Uh, but maybe, yeah, if if someone else wants to step in. Um, I was reading his recent blog posts on his uh, on his WordPress, talking about um, basically the in, the ways in which um, the the feudal state influenced what we know today as like the modern Anglosphere political order. But yeah, if if someone else like who's a actual historian wants to step in, uh, I'm more of the debate side, I guess you could say. So I'm happy to do a little bit, but equally, as we've already said, it's very contentious. I'll say a little bit, and I'm happy to then pass it on to the other medievalists. I, I do think it's important to go back to the basics and talk about the medieval world before we start talking about anything subsequent. Um, if that's fine with with the host, then absolutely, I can give it mm -hmm. a crack. Okay, feudalism, the big F word in medieval history, um, don't make it synonymous with the Middle Ages. I know some people do, but it's a sort of strange, it's a model, perhaps a concept that you can apply to the Middle Ages. I'd, even if you do, I don't think it applies to the entire Middle Ages. The Middle Ages are um, is the millennium from about 500 AD or CE uh, to 1500. Um, feudalism, if you acknowledge that it exists, doesn't begin then it begins probably anywhere between the 9th 10th 11th 12th century again huge debates about this uh, it's not a contemporary term although the term from which it is ultimately derived uh, the latin feodum feudum uh, or the fief as we translate it in english is a contemporary term but no one in the middle ages thought of themselves as living in a feudal world um, equally of course they never thought of themselves as living in the middle ages so that's no excuse to toss the concept entirely. Um, as we've said, no one agrees on this. I would say Mark Bloch is probably the big first name that you want to consider. He, he defined feudalism in very broad socio-economic terms uh, as a model to basically understand medieval society in the central and, and later Middle Ages. Famously, we, we talk about the three estates of the realm. People who study the French Revolution will be familiar with this. Do you know what the three estates are? Nobility, clergy, and everyone else, basically. Um, if you like, those who fight, so that's the knights and the nobles and the kings. Those who pray and look after your spiritual needs, that's the clergy. And those who work, that's us, everyone else. Um, and so that, to him, was sort of feudal society, and he characterized the Middle Ages like that. But other people, I think Nigel had mentioned, uh, Gansoff, he went for a more narrowly defined feudalism, which basically attempted to explain the relationship between lords and their vassals, and the sort of knightly, 
you know bonds that you uh, make so if i'm a lord or a king or a duke i have land i give land to my knights which they hold from me in service uh, and they and they provide a service there's a, some sort of reciprocal relationship um uh, i would disagree with nigel saying that it's horizontal i think there is a very clear hierarchy in medieval life um, whether you acknowledge feudalism or not, I think there are clear hierarchies. Of course, the, the feudal pyramid is often a simplistic rendering of that hierarchy, but certainly we're not dealing with equality under the law and everyone happy together. Uh, no, you know, uh, class, if you like, is deeply entrenched in, in, in the Middle Ages. Um, but there are mutual ob obligations. The peasants have to work for their lords and the knights and the lords have to provide men to fight in the king's armies. But equally, there are obligations that go down the hierarchy as well. Uh, the king has to provide land to his uh, lords and he has to take their counsel. He has to take their advice. And um, the peasants should be protected by the guys who fight. Yeah. If you can't protect your peasants, then why are they working for you? Um, I could go on for hours and you will all tell me to shut up, but I'll happily cede the floor there. Well, I would love to uh, go to uh, Dr. Uh, Watson and Rosie, but first I wanted to make sure that Nigel is able to get us a uh, point through uh, that was cut off before by the uh, bad uh, connection. So, Nigel, uh, can, uh, can you hear are us? We f are we fine? I can hear you. What about my voice? Uh, is it fine? Perfect. Perfect. Oh, no problem at all. Way better. Yes. Mm -hmm. See, told oh, you, you got to right. use the phone. You got to use the phone. Right. I'm just, uh, I'm wilding because, like, I'm, I can't believe that's your voice. Having known you on the internet for a very long time, it's like it, it, it reminds you of someone we know, right, Gio? It's a yeah, very, it's, it's a very <laughs> deep Slavic drawl. Well, know? one one time in the magazine we we used to write for, we tried to have a live stream with Carlsbad, but it just it was like literally like a Mersbo, uh like noise ambient. I, lit, I literally <laughs> I literally didn't even have a headset at the time, and I was like straight up, you know, like it was just yeah, I was remember with uh, what the Thermidor harsh noise concert, you know. Anyway, I was going to talk about, because there's two ways to understand this. We can talk about feudal law as a juridical system, as a legal system, you know, as a kind of a, a system of real property based in a unique category of property called the fief. We can also understand it historically, and I admit that my history here is rather iffy, but let me say a couple of things. No one is entirely sure what exactly, where exactly does this broadly feudal model of um, lands with uh, non-possessory interest and servitudes attached to them exchange this beneficium really starts. But it's probably in the Frankish Empire because in the Frankish Empire in the 8th century, royal, royal monasteries were very important as a they were considered to be servitia regis meaning servants of the king so royal monasteries were well first of all obviously clergy can't fight so someone has to protect them from you know viking saracens and later on majars but also at one point they ended up owning something like a third of all land in the frankish empire uh the problem being that since lands of the church cannot be alienated they're inviolable because they do not belong to man they belong to god and the saints but at the same time with so much territorial possessions 
there have to be certain uh, they have to be given out you know for military defense and for also for agricultural production and so in roman law there's this legal instrument called the precarium and the precarium is a kind of legal fiction where the dominium, the ownership of the land is kept by an overlord, but the possessio, the usufruct, is uh, given to you know what we might call a vassal or an inferior. Uh, the legal terminology is very variable. And one of the first uh, precarium contracts was actually in the year 763 by Carloman, king of the Franks, who, if I recall correctly, was actually the younger brother of Charlemagne. And I'm going to quote the text. This, this was the Council of Estins in 763. It was, a Frank, it was a synod of like the bishops and the king and the nobles. We also decide with the agreement of the servants of God and of the Christian people because of imminent wars and attacks by other peoples who surround us to keep for some time with the indulgence of God a portion of the properties of the church's precaria owing census on this condition that annually we will return to each church or monastery for each property one solidus that being a Frankish monetary unit that is to say 12 denarii in such a way that if the person to whom the property was given as a precarium should die the property shall revert to the church. And if once again, circumstances are such as to compel the prince to order it, let the precarium be renewed and a new contract drawn up. But let extreme care be taken that the churches and monasteries whose property has been granted in precarium are not reduced to poverty and want. But if poverty requires it, let full possession be restored to the church and the house of God. Now, in addition, in Roman law, there's also this concept of an emphytusis, an emphytutic lease, which is the perpetual right in a piece of land that is the property of another. The right consisting in the legal power to cultivate it, treat it as your own, on condition of cultivating it properly and paying a fixed sum to the owner at fixed times. So it's a contract between an owner and a lessee. It's basically an old version of like a leasehold. Then more pertinent to the fief, because as, as you ought to know, fiefs, fiefs um, customarily they pass through primogeniture to the firstborn son, which as far as I recall, this was actually a particular custom in Norman law because the Anglo-Saxons you know, like, for example, in Kent, uh, they had this system of tenure called the gable kind, where property was divided in equal lots among all the male progeny. But the predecessor to this is another institution in Roman law called the fidi commissum, which is a, a testamentary disposition by which a person gives, who gives something to another imposes on him the obligation of transferring it to a third person. Uh, the reason you would use a fideicomissum is you want to maintain a given collateral line of succession within a given family. Like later on in English law, there's the concept of a fee tail or an entailed estate, which has the same purpose. And finally, in the Roman law, there's also the concept of servitutis, servitudes, which are 
non-possessory restrictions on the use of a land, which are two kinds relating to persons and relating to things. So for example, there's a kind of personal servitude where the uh, owner gives the the grantor gives the grantee the right to the use and services of, of another person's slave or beast, which later on, you know, you can also find this in like manorial law. There's quite a lot of anal analogies here. Then there's uh, servitudes related to things like, for example, you know, the right to send smoke through a neighbor's chimney, the right to build a drain, uh, the right to collect rainwater, so on and so forth. And this uh, Roman institution later on becomes known as what's called a feudal incident or a feudal aid. And one last thing before we give the mic to someone else, um, I'm gonna quote this conjectural history of how the fief arose from the Libri Fildorum of the 12th century, which is a, an, a book of academic law compiled by professional lawyers in Lombardy trained in the University of Bologna in the 12th century. And the historical conjecture, which as far as I can tell is surprisingly correct for something written so long ago. I mean, I mean, come on, I mean, they were pretty close to the time period, so why wouldn't it be correct? But I'm gonna quote, in the very earliest times, the benefice was so far subject to the Lord's authority that he might take away at will what he had granted in fee. But afterwards, it came about that the vassal had security of tenure for a year only. And then it was ordained that this should be extended to the length of his life. So it, it becomes progressively more secure for the vassal. But still, at that point, his sons had no right of succession. So the next stage was that the benefice should pass to the sons, that is, to whichever of them the Lord chose to grant it, which today is agreed to mean that it belongs to all of them equally. When, however, Conrad, uh, Conrad being uh, Conrad II, Holy Roman Emperor in the early 11th century, journeyed to Rome, the vassals in his service petitioned him to enact a law extending the succession to the sons of a son and granting that the brother of a man who died without legitimate heirs should succeed him in their father's benefice, this being primogeniture. It should also be noticed that though daughters as well as sons may succeed their father, they are by law excluded from succeeding to a fief, and so are their sons likewise, unless it is specially stated that the daughters may succeed. It must, in addition, be observed that the benefice does not extend the collaterals other than the sons of a father's brother in the usage established by the lawyers of antiquity. But in the modern epoch, the succession has been extended even to the seventh degree, so that in contemporary law, a benefice passes to the male descendants in infinitum. And that's what I got to say about the fief in general. So let's uh, move I on. I mean, that, that, is, that is quite a lot of ground that you covered right now. But uh, if we were to, uh, well, let's go to Dr. Watson. If we were to take a lot of the things that were mentioned here, would you agree with them? Were there certain things that you can put into a chunk and say that you largely uh, disagree? Because I want to figure out, like, if there is any contention as far as the way the past is uh, seen, specifically feudalism is seen, this is what I want to kind of bring about right now and to figure out what the contention is. Yeah, um, I mean, that is, that is a lot of, of, of information to contend with. I think, I mean, one, 
one, one proviso that's going to make it seem like I'm kind of covering myself before I begin, and that, that kind of is one of the big, one of the big provisos with um, those kind of broad studies. I think in a Scottish context is even by the often quite sort of poor standards of source survival um, from the medieval period, Scotland is desperately low um, in terms of actual material and particularly pre-1300 because um, there is a, well, in part, because on top of all of the usual things that um, cause sources to be lost, there is a pretty systematic effort to denude Scotland of its pre-14th century um, legal sources um, with the first war of Scottish independence. Um, that being said, you know, we do have charters surviving, we do have a, a sort of scattering of um, narrative sources um, and sort of parliamentary sources and so forth, some of them um, contained in later collections and so on. Um, the disruptions, though, of particularly the early 14th century, I do think make, make sort of passing really kind of detailed and substantive judgments about some of these things for Scotland difficult. From my perspective, speaking as a, a sort of 14th and, and 15th century um, historian, in terms of some of the, the concepts that have, have come up so far, um, you know, a, a lot of the, you know, so we heard the phrase, the three estates uh, from Alex there. Um, in a Scottish context, interestingly, that term, that phrase really becomes, um, comes into force, comes into use in Scotland, really in the 15th century. And what it replaces really is a, a, a phrase, the community of the realm, which during the 14th um, and early 15th centuries had, be, had been used to describe really sort of politically active Scots. Um, so it's certainly one of the three estates is those who, in, in a 15th century Scottish context, one of those is uh, those who fight, um, you know, the, the nobility, the aristocracy. Um, one of those is certainly the clergy. The third estate, though, um, when that phrase is being used um, in sort of Scottish parliaments from mid-15th uh, mid century onwards, um, is increasingly the burgesses. What I suppose you know, to, to draw on that sort of Marxist terminology that was mentioned earlier, what we might think of as the emerging bourgeoisie, um, who in theory are at this point beginning to kind of squeeze out the aristocracy and the, the sort of old ruling class and so forth. Um, and yet in Scotland, we see them be, when we first really start to see them being, um, uh, not necessarily being politically active, but being acknowledged as having the right to a say in the way that the kingdom is governed, you know, having a right to be part of the political community. Um, it is this, with this feudal phrase, the three estates, that we see them um, 
being included in. Um, at the same sort of time, um, a lot of the rights that um, are in scholarly literature associated with uh, feudalism. Um, so in Scotland, these, these rights are, are called things uh, like recognition, um, remissions, so a, a remission is essentially where you pay the crown a certain amount of money and they, um, they use their discretion to forgive you of a, of a particular crime. Um, you know, recognition, it relates to um, when a, a, a property passes from one individual to their heir, um, they're they uh, supposed to essentially apply to the, the crown to have that passage recognized. They can't just kind of assume that, you know, this is the natural order of things and so forth. There has to be a kind of legal process associated with that. Um, so in the sort of later um, 15th century, particularly from around 1469, which is the beginning of the personal reign of James III, um, the issue of remissions and recognition become really kind of hot button issues for, for the three estates. They, it, they get discussed in Parliament an awful lot. Um, however, the reason for that is that the Crown is going very hot and heavy on exploiting those rights that it has in theory had since time immemorial, as far as it's concerned, as a way of making money. And it's using it as a way of making money so that Scottish kings who traditionally have been pretty cash poor can live like Renaissance princes, can indulge in these increasingly sort of contemporary, you know, modern, uh, as far as anyone the 15th century is concerned, forms of very, um, uh, you know, sort of conspicuous consumption, very over the top and grand um, showy kingship. Uh, the entails, um, again, just, just to sort of highlight how some of the sort of terminology that we've heard so far is used, particularly in Scotland, entails are really interesting in, um, in a, a Scottish context because we do see those being used quite a bit in the 14th century, given the, um, the disruption caused for the Scots at the tail end of the 13th and into the start of the 14th century um, by the succession crisis that, that starts with um, uh, the death of Alexander III and then uh, in 1286, and then four years later, his uh, granddaughter, Margaret, uh, the maid of Norway in 1290. Um, the 14th century Scots are very understandably very nervous about how particularly the kingdom and the kingship passes between individuals. Um, they are very... Um, uh, sensitive to the notion that there has to be some kind of clarity about that on the day that whoever, whichever monarch dies, um, that we know where the crown is going. So there's as little disruption as humanly possible. And actually, Robert Bruce, my guy, um, worked both of those entails probably um, reflect the, the 
debates and, uh, and uncertainty about that, trying to sort of clarify, well, okay, this is where the kingship is going um, in the event that uh, Robert II dies. And that arguably, because of sort of, you know, that, that use of entails to um, clarify the, the succession um, and to really to cons con consolidate Bruce and Stuart power um, or control over um, the line of succession, um, we actually see quite a few um, uh, noble entails being produced. It, it kind of becomes, um, I don't want to say kind of a fashion, um, but it, it, it becomes relatively common for the, the uh, families that have grown up um, and, and around uh, the Bruce regime and who kind of owe their success to the Bruce regime to sort themselves an entail of their own so that they can, um, uh, again, put a very clear stamp on where the properties and the rights and so forth that they generally trace back to their service to Robert Bruce um, where those things are going. So Robert Keith gets one um, sort of as a Christmas present. Um, he gets it on the on Boxing Day, I think 1324. Um, the, uh, the most powerful magnate family in 14th and 15th century Scotland, the Black Douglases, um, who some of you watching this may even have, have heard about, they kind of loom very large in... Um, in medieval Scottish history, um, they are founded by an illegitimate son of the good Sir James Douglas, who, you know, anyone who's seen Outlaw King will recognise as, as Aaron Taylor Johnson, um, one of Bruce's kind of chief lieutenants. Um, his illegitimate son, Archibald the Graham, is, is the first of, of the black Douglas, Earls of Douglas. Um, he becomes the Earl of Douglas in 1388 to 89, on the back of an entail um, that had been drawn up in the, the 1340s, again, to, to, um, to sort of ensure that the, the Douglas patrimony, the Douglas inheritance would stay within the family. Is that feudal or is it not? I think kind of, it depends on how you define feudal. I mean, Notionally, these are, you know, feudal rights um, or, or, you know, things that modern um, legal historians and so forth have identified as, you know, aspects of feudal law. Um, they are not really being used to enforce an especially rigid set of social structures. They're not you know, in, in the case of um, the entails that I mentioned, um, they are, for the most part, being used to get around the strict letter of the law as it would work if the entail didn't exist. Um, the, you know, James III's use of remissions um, aren't really, you know, an effort by a king to emphasize his long-standing legal rights. They're a kind of cynical way for the 
Scottish Crown to screw some cash, some readies out of the um, the uh, the community of the realm from the three estates. Of course, it may be that these things have existed since time immemorial, and that's what they've always been. Um, and it, it kind of comes down, I suppose, to how we everybody how wants we interpret money. the this sort of feudal tradition. Uh, yeah, everybody to... wants to make some cash, and I would love for Nigel to comment on that. But before that, uh, Sophie, you had not a chance to speak yet. So, would you also uh, give a bit of a before Nigel responds your perspective on, let's say, the Nordic side that you studied, or pretty much any side that you want to, as far as uh, are the things Dr. Watson talked about and Nigel talked about also uh, present? Um. I don't really have much to add beyond the fact that it really makes me think of the Scandinavian Udal system that went into Scotland before Scotland took over Orkney and Shetland. And you're just thinking of all these funny laws like the shoreline law where, you know, the feudal system is saying, hey, high tide that you can own land up to the high tide mark. But the Udal system is like, no, the lowest tide. So you have all these sort of really weird legal, if you want to call them that at that time, sort of legal rights. and the Udal system kind of upended a lot of things in the feudal uh, world of Orkney specifically. It's just some weird thoughts like that that I have right now. I don't really have anything else to add. Well, then let's go to, uh, oh, can I, let's go to Alex. Can I yes. just add, yes, I, I have listened with great interest to uh, quite a lot of stuff. Um, uh, you know, Dr. Watson's sort of history of the entailing was really quite, uh, I know nothing about that and I found it very interesting. Um, so thanks. Um, going back to Nigel's first uh, monologue is a bit more my territory. And I just want to clarify a few things because there was a lot in there. I'm going to be honest, I didn't follow it all. Um, but he touched on a few really important concepts in medieval property, which is my area. Um, and I appreciate, you know, Nigel's not an expert. He's an enthusiast. Um, and I, I think that's great. Uh, but there were a few, you know, assertions and assumptions and oversimplifications that I just want to address. Great. Um, Let's get into it. So I want to bring it back to basics, right? We're talking about, you know, uh, Nigel mentioned a lot of terms, precarium, uh, feudum, entailing, benefices. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to wind the clock back to ask you to think about the question um how did how did property really work in the middle ages right and in my view and i think it's a fair one property is the be-all end-all land is the be-all end-all in in the middle ages certainly in my period i mean we heard from callum about the the emerging you know mercantile class the, the bourgeoisie but really if, if you think capital is king in the current era under capitalism under feudalism let's say in the middle ages land is everything and um, the inheritance of land and the succession to land is everything, which is sort of what what Nigel was getting at, and also what what Dr. Watson, you know, uh, expanded with the, with the Scottish example. So, if you're the king or a ruler, you have lots of land, and you you want to give that land to your followers in order to get them to follow you. You know, how how do you build a state? How do you build a medieval polity? How do you get people to do what you want? Basically, is sort of what I'm getting at: state formation, coalescence. You know, how do states cohere in the Middle Ages after the the Western Roman Empire has fallen? Um, well, 
you give them land, you exercise patronage, right? That's the sort of currency. So I say to Lev, right, I'm the king of England. I say to Lev, Lev, uh, the Scots are being bloody awful. I need you to go up there and be the Earl, be the Earl of Northumberland. I'm going to give you all of this land, right? And you're going to protect the border against the troublesome Scots. Um, I, I've turned you into a billionaire overnight. You're right. Let's say you're a wealthy guy anyway, but I have, you know, I have such um, scope for patronage as the king. I'm giving you the earldom of, of Northumberland. I'm sure it's lovely up there. I wouldn't know anything about that, um, but it's yours. Take it. And I've turned you into a billionaire overnight. Okay. And as Nigel sort of touched on about benefices and precarium, the question is, how do you hold that land? Is it yours? Do you own it? Or are you just holding it? And if I were to ask you, uh, Lev, the new Earl of Northumberland, you would say, well, it's my land. It, the king gave it to me and it is mine to do with what I want. I will pass it on to my heirs, right? Uh, not necessarily through pri primogeniture, which uh, to the un uninitiated is giving everything to the firstborn son. Um, so that's a, that's an oversimplification. Sometimes we have all, you know, and in fairness to Nigel, he did mention other systems, but by and large, your all of your offspring, uh, predominantly men, but also women, have a claim to your land. Okay, that's what they will say. And you, being the lovely father that you are, you want to pass on all of this great wealth because remember, you're not really getting a salary; you're just getting the land. You want to pass on every bit of land that you acquire, no matter how you acquire it, you want to pass that land on to your children, okay? But I don't want that to happen because I've given you that to do a job. And when you die in battle against the Scots, as you surely will, uh, I want that land back because I'm going to give the earldom to Geo, who's this up and coming guy who's you know done well at court. But your children are not going to be happy about that. And, and so there we have sort of, you have two concepts about how land works in the Middle Ages. On the one hand, you have land that can be inherited by your offspring. We call this heritable, land that is heritable, not necessarily hereditary, but heritable. And then you have land which is a, a sort of given to you, which is expected back by the person who gave it to you. Okay, and this is what Nigel was talking about when he mentioned precaria, because it's held precariously, and beneficia or benefices, because I'm giving you as a benefit, almost as a salary, I'm giving you this land to do a job. When that job is over, it comes back to me. And this sets up the king and the aristocracy for dispute, right? Because you want to pass that land on to your children and I want it back because I've only got a, I've got a finite pot of land and I need I have lots of aristocrats and lords that I need to give land to. So if you're going to keep passing it on to your children generation after generation, my pot is going to become very empty very quickly. And so uh, that, that sets us up for conflict. Also. The, these two separate categories of land, land that can be inherited by your children, which is your family land, land that you inherited from your father and he inherited from his parents, and the land that you got for being the Earl of Northumberland, because you were the first Earl of Northumberland in your family. These two separate categories of land, familial estates, uh, uh, what we call allod, allodial property, and the beneficium, precarium, whatever you want to call it, land that I give you to do the job, over time, they blend and they merge into the feud, the feudum, I should say, the fief, which basically is this. I'm giving you the land. 
you have to perform homage for it. You have to acknowledge that you got it from me and that you hold it at my pleasure. But if you behave yourself, I will allow you to pass it on to your children. That's basically the compromise that we arrive at. And that's what the sort of feudal revolution is, really, because it wasn't always like that. These two separate categories were separate, but they're becoming they become merged. And that's what the fief is. And so the relationship depends on my personal uh, relationship with you. You hold the land from me. You perform the service for it. It's sort of land for a job. I'm loaning it to you. I'm still the overlord. But if you play your cards right, I'm not going to take it back. And obviously there's, a, there's an element of like, well, can I really take it back? Because I'm, you know, yeah. I'm trying to be fair. And if I keep taking things back, the aristocracy are going to get pissed off at me. And you'll arrive at King John and Magna Carta, right? Also, you must pay me an, an inheritance tax. That's the one thing I've got. Your children will have to pay what's called a relief. When you die in battle against the Scots very bravely, your children, should they be of age, I will say, yes, of course they can inherit. Lev did great, a great job for me. He was a loyal baron. But they're going to pay me an inheritance tax, yeah? Because, and that's me, that is me asserting my right as the overlord to that land. It's not yours, it's mine, but I'm going to let you have it for, for a relief, for an inheritance tax. And kings can either exploit that for financial gain which will cause your, your children to be unhappy. And that's how we get Magna Carta. Or they can, they can basically remit it and they can say, you know what, uh, Lev II, you can have it for free. But remember that I've done that. Yeah. And that's, and, po that's political capital, right? And, and for those who don't know, what exactly happened after Magna Carta? What did Magna so, Carta change for, yeah, for so, the dunces in the room? So I've been talking about the sort of central Middle Ages, you know, uh, in the 11th century and, and in the 12th century um, and, and specifically about England. Uh, English kings were very good or very bad, depending on how you see it, at exploiting these rights of what we call feudal lordship. So uh, whenever a lord died, the kings would, would, would charge very large reliefs, very large inheritance taxes to their, to their offspring. And this naturally pissed off the aristocracy. He were like, well, this, this should be our land anyway, you know? Um, but but, that, but that, there, there's a sort of ambiguity in, in, the, in the fief. And so eventually after a few generations after the Norman conquest in 1066, uh, and lots of kings exploiting these rights for financial gain, um, which I think uh, Dr. Watson also mentioned, because the kings are not cash rich, really. You know, they have taxation sometimes, but they, this is a big earner for them to charge reliefs. Eventually, the baronial grievances come to the fore in the form of Magna Carta. And Magna Carta, it, in a nutshell, is basically telling the king to live by his own laws, that he is not above the law. It's not a revol it's not that revolutionary, you know, it doesn't create the trial by jury necessarily. It's not the start of habeas corpus, but it says to the king, can you stop taking the piss with your feudal rights over us and and sort of try and be fair, not uh, not arbitrary basically. And so the king agrees, you know, not to abuse his powers and not to sort of accept lots of bribes in order for mm -hmm. him to, to to make the right decision. Um it's about money, really. You know, one of the key things about Magna Carta is that the aristocracy are fed up with paying uh, King John. It is, but King John was a shit. 
never forget that he was he was he was a shit but he was doing similar things to what his predecessors did in in exploiting his his rights over the aristocracy and so magna carta is basically about trying to stop that trying to to get the king to agree to play fair hmm and I, I would love to uh, hear a response uh, from Nigel about this. And then something that's always interested me, the re one of the reasons why I started this discussion in the first place, is to look back and see whether there was some kind of a... Um, um, some kind of like we have here in the United States, you know, we have uh, various branches of government and they're supposed to uh, hold the other branches accountable, where... I wonder if there was a certain kind of triad system like that where you have the king, the people, and the aristocracy, where if the aristocracy ends up, uh, you know, up to no good with the people, then the people could go to the king, and then the king would be on behalf of the people. So there would be now a way we're talking less. powers. So also, we're I really going... want to ask, um, like, a few, few things come to mind just to open the discussion about one being property, um, and the notion of political authority and how different it was back in, in the days of feudalism than like, what would you say, modern, like post-Westphalian state <clears throat> that may or may not have come about because of what they call, you know, print capital, but also just this, the need for uh, the legitimacy of the king and the Magna Carta and whether that was a result of various um, reformations that w were eroding a much more older um what, what do they call it where they have a a godly duty to their citizenship um a blessed noblege is that what it's called uh oh i keep forgetting the name but um if that was a result of the erosion of an older authority uh that kings were instantiated with from various religious edicts and that you know then like sort of by the 19th century you had like, you know, the parliamentary system and all of that. So that's just a, an open-ended question. Like where does legitimacy come from if there is a lack of um, divine authority? Now it becomes much more worldly, so. Uh, well, basically we, from, yeah. uh, how do we, basically from blood. Uh, now, actually, if we're talking about we touched on so many things, actually, like uh, Mr. Diamond was talking about the feudal instance, like relief. To me, the more interesting ones are not uh, are like uh, wardship and marriage, because, you know, historically on many of these like thieves, you know, there was this right that uh, there was this casualty where the superior is entitled to a certain sum of money to be paired by the heir of his formal vessel who had not been married before his ancestor's death at his age of puberty. In fact, in many ways, the, the lord, not just for nobles, but also for peasants who are holding a copy code from a manor, they could have their they could have their marriages be arranged by the overlord. And if, if they did not uh, agree to the choice, they had to pay a certain fine. So that to me is very interesting because in a sort of a pre-modern fertility control. Uh, as to legitimacy, I was about to quote actually, um, hold on. Uh, Everybody subscribe a, while Nigel is thinking. Everybody subscribe right now. Everybody subscribe. Everybody subscribe. I hope everybody who is on the panel subscribed as well. We are going to have yeah, a was, lot of... Yes, go on. I was about to quote the shower. Now, this is centuries later, like in the, the early 17th century in France, about monarchical succession. So here goes. 
Monarchs, by means of their absolute power, have nearly everywhere learned to perpetuate their estate to their posterity. And although in many monarchies there has been admitted the succession, it has not been done in order to render them purely hereditary and patrimonial, like fiefs, nor in effect for the profit and advantage of the monarchs, but for the repose of the people. And also, in order to avoid the calamities and disorders which usually happen when there is no certain successor to the kingdom, it has been found best to vouchsafe and provide, provide in perpetuity the successors to the state so that it cannot be without a head. This can be done only by destining by means of a royal and fundamental law that the nearest royal line reigns successively as if called by the law of the state, which leads to a kind of gradual substitution of the princes of the blood in the family. And thus we see it so in France where it is true to say that the crown is not purely hereditary, nor given by testament, nor intestate, but is deferred by the law of the kingdom to the first prince of the blood, by the right of blood, and within the right to name heredity. So in the 16th century in France, we start to see the development of a kind of proto-constitutionalist idea among the parliamentaires, like the French lawyers who had to approve of uh, the king's edicts, that the French monarchy is not hereditary, it's successive. And the difference is that now this sounds rather, um, this sounds like a very tenuous distinction, but the difference is that if it's a hereditary monarchy, this implies that the king could potentially change the house laws of the succession arbitrarily. Because if the kingdom is an allot, you know, he could theoretically sell it off, uh, give it to a, uh, give it to like a lower agnate of the family. But the king is subject to fundamental laws so that he cannot dispose or alienate of the royal patrimony arbitrarily because the kingship is not merely property, it's an office. I mean, he'd still be, be able to do some arranged marriages with somebody who he may not care for that much and pass within, it on that way. Within it's important to distinguish, if I may, it's important to distinguish between the crown, the office, uh, the, the title. Saw, yeah. And also, sort, the, yeah. and also the you know the lands attached the the, the property that goes with it. If you yes, if you like, the, if you want to call it the royal estates, you know, I mean, in, in the king German, the, the, the king can do whatever he wants by and large with the royal estates. So there are some important caveats to that if you want to chase hmm. me up. But so, you, so you can't just the, give away you can't just give away the crown by and large in, in the Middle Ages. In German, the distinction is between domain goods and chamber goods, domain and guten und Kammerguten where the domain and guten belong purely to the royal family, their own private possession, which, which they can alienate and dispose of arbitrarily, whereas the kammer guten are things like, you know... So this is interesting, because in a patrimonial system of government, you have a sort of a simultaneous blending of private and common property, because on one hand, you know, things like rivers, forests, salt mines, they're privately owned by means of the Jura Regalia, but at the same time, they're common uh, in the sense that even though they're privately owned, the king offer, or the king or the lord or the prince, you know, like in the German, in the Holy Roman Empire, we're talking about territorial princes. The territorial prince offers a non-possessory interest 
in these lands for common pasture, right of passage, and so forth. So, you know, like, I'm actually, what comes to mind is, like, in our modern time, there's the government shutdown, you know, like, when Congress can't vote on a budget, you know, the first thing that happens is, like, all the museums and parks, mm. they shut down. Like, why? If, if they really belong to the people, why does that happen? And the truth well, is, of course, they don't. They don't belong to the people. They belong to the corporation that is the state. And well, Dr. Patrick, Watson the... also has a quick thing uh, to add. He has a hand up, but this is a really fascinating thing. But Dr. Watson, go ahead. Unmute yourself, please. You got to unmute yourself. There we go. There we go. Um, just, I, 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 I don't know if this is really moving the conversation along at all, but just thinking about um, the, you know, this, you know, distinction between crown and the, the, the institution of the crown and the, the royal demands, the kind of, you know, royal lands, um, but also just tying into these, these issues of how beholden um, medieval kings are to the, the estates or, or, or to their, to their subjects. I think again, Scotland. The reason the, the reason I'm a little bit concerned that this isn't massively helpful to to the discussion is that Scotland is kind of a weird case study in how the very sort of specific um, situation that a, that a medieval kingdom can find itself in can kind of shape the way these things are perceived and the way these things work. Coming from from the perspective of someone, I, obviously I work for the the National Trust for Scotland, um, and I, I, I work at at the Battle of Bannockburn Visit Centre. Last year was supposed to be our big year for celebrating the declaration of our broth, which is kind of Scotland's Magna Carta, at least in kind of the public perception of how these things are. It's a, a wholly different document than the Magna Carta, and in lots of ways quite badly understood, I think, in this sort of public consciousness. But it's often pointed at, um, at famously as, you know, one of these foundational documents for constitutional monarchy or, or for, um, you know, the notion that, that it should be the people that, that govern um, within a, a, a polity all relating back to a, 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 a statement um, that yeah, um, Canada Day is always a big, <laughs> a, a, a big deal um, in the states, and it's I mean you know kind of a nice thing, um, but it, it, there is there is a, a statement in the um, in in the Declaration, um, which isn't even really a declaration as uh, in the way that you know, we would understand it or the way that it, it, you know, it often gets compared to things like um, the Declaration of Independence and so forth. But there is a statement where, um, obviously, so the Declaration of Arborough, for those of you that don't know, it's a, is a letter to the Pope produced in 1320, um, ostensibly from the barons of Scotland expressing their support for Robert Bruce as King of Scots. And in the document, um, they claim that if Bruce were to fail in his responsibilities of 
defending the realm and keeping the English out and, you know, making sure that their rights and freedoms, their liberties, um, again, understood in a very aristocratic sense. You know, it is noble rights and, and liberties, the rights and liberties of the kingdom's greatest landowners that we're talking about here anyway. Um, but if Bruce was not fulfilling his responsibility to make sure those rights and liberties were preserved, they would get rid of them and choose another to replace him. Which on the face of it does read as quite a sort of egalitarian claim. And it's understandable why people often feel proud about this. It loses some of its strength when you realize that almost certainly it was produced by the Bruce Chancery, um, quite possibly by his his chancellor, Bernard Abbott of Arbroath, hence why it was given at Arbroath, which is where the chancery is um, in Bruce, during Bruce's reign. Um, and when we, when we realize that, it very quickly becomes clear this is actually the Bruce regime justifying what happened to Bruce's predecessor. Um, there was a King of Scots from 1292 to 1296, um, John Balliol, with, who the Bruce regime do not recognize because technically he still was King of Scots, legally speaking, in 1306 when Robert Bruce stabs his main rival to death in a church and has himself declared um, King of Scots. All that having been said, you know, despite despite the, the sort of misleading nature of that one particular claim, those dislocations of the late 13th and early 14th century do in Scotland, I think, breed a kind of interesting understanding on the part of the Scots concerning the difference between not just the you know, the office of the crown and the crown's estates, but between the, the person of the king and the office of the crown. And what we see growing out of this, and arguably this is traceable even before so sort of the early 13th century, we see an appreciation on the part of medieval Scots that there are certain roles and responsibilities that go with being the king that belong to, you know, the eldest male member of a given family. But it is entirely feasible for those roles and responsibilities to be performed by an intermediary, to be performed by somebody else, if the person in whom that... Um, those responsibilities should by rights be invested is a kid or is kind of crap at it or is, you know, has decided that he's going to side with the English for the time being because it suits him personally. Um, and it, I mean, it grows out the Scots in the 13th century, early 13th century, Alexander III, when he becomes king, is I think he's just turned eight or maybe just about to turn eight. They have a long minority that is horrible and disruptive. Um, and it, it kind of teaches the Scots that they kind of need, um, they need to find some way of, of you know, ensuring stability in, in, in mm. the, the event that um, mm. uh, kind of, you know, we lose the king for, for a wee while. Which is why when Alexander III dies, actually the Scots react quite quickly and establish for themselves a, a council of guardians and work on 
you know, trying to figure out who, who next gets to take over. The awful death and destruction that's rained on them during the First War of Scottish Independence hammers that home even more effectively. And so over the course of the 14th and 15th centuries, we find guardianships as they're initially called lieutenancies as they eventually become actually become almost as common as an individual king ruling doesn't actually take the king to feel particularly hard in his um, responsibilities for somebody else to you know to, for them to be told listen step aside and let someone else have a go or let the five of us have a go or let you know parliament run things for a, a wee sec um, that's uh, that. That's the big question, isn't it? Here, because when it comes to there being certain rules that have been, let's say, according to Nigel, biologically set, that once more of them start to be broken and broken and broken, not just for exceptions, but now the entire system's changed. The question is, what are the benefits, but also what are the drawbacks? And uh, this is something that I would love for uh, Nigel to touch on, but also open it up to everybody. We also have Apex joining us. Thank you very much for coming in, Apex. So, uh, Nigel, let me know if uh, if there is a way to like uh, sh like uh, say it not not that long, but kind of like squeeze in the meat of what exactly the big problems are here. As far squeeze as squeeze in the this... meat, that is squeeze a metaphor. The... Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, in BTR, you get to see how the sausage is uh, made. So anyway. <laughs> Uh, Nigel, could, you go please, for it. could you like frame a question because I'm not entirely sure what you're asking? Sure, sure, sure. Okay, so when you were talking about uh, figuring out where we put the chat over here, because now we have another person. In. So when you were talking about the uh, blood having to do, uh, having to play a very big role as far as who gets to be a legitimate uh, successor, and now we have these parliamentary systems. Now we have a liberal democracy and all that. So do you see? uh a a negative that people may not talk about as much because i think that there are let's say on twitter people who long for the days of uh you know feudalism long for the middle ages thing like oh they had it so right back then and now we're all just going in the wrong direction now obviously that is a very extreme way of putting it but i wanted to kind of uh s scope that out a bit and see what we can uh what more information we can gather from this before um before nigel uh answers that question may i interject a point um, absolutely from a different angle i absolutely. appreciate dr watson's uh grappling in the weeds of scottish history um, but i want to take a different vantage probably you know fifty thousand feet up in the air uh looking backwards um now, you know, this is the funny thing is, you know, I encounter enough of uh, rad trads online who do long to reinstantiate, um, sometimes uncritically. Um, you also have people who are much more intelligent, like uh, who aren't just online people, um, what I call the uh, McIntyre mafia guys who circle around Alistair McIntyre and end up repeating similar tropes of criticism about the Renaissance, the Reformation, and then subsequently the Enlightenment. But one of the interesting things looking backwards is, and this is what got me to want to participate on this panel, is how often um, theorists of liberalism actually long for something like medieval society or believe it's inevitable. So I'm just going to give one example of someone who's uh, semi-influential, but he's kind of a uh, you know, 
he's not necessarily the first person you think of. And this is from Philip Bobbitt's The Shield of Achilles. Um, and it's a book, it's, like, it's a genealogical book trying to explain what he calls the market state. And so he's giving a summary, um, and I'm just going to quote it on page 363, if anyone's interested, um, that he says that, um, quote, I, I will imagine various constitutional orders of the society of market states and conclude, he's summarizing what he's doing in part three of the book, and conclude by arguing that by varying the degree of sovereignty retained by the people, states will develop different forms of the market state yielding a more pluralistic constitution for international society. In some ways, that constitution and its international law will resemble that of medieval society with its overlapping and complex system of jurisdictions, a society, in other words, that had no modern concept of state sovereignty based on a European model. In medieval Europe, a free city might owe legal duties to an ecclesiastical authority, such as the local bishop, to a federal authority and to a league of such cities and even share certain legal responsibilities with local squires. The international law of the society of market states will reflect an analogous complexity where multinational companies, NGOs, governments, and ad hoc coalitions share overlapping authority within a framework of universal commercial law, but regionalized political rules. So what's interesting, I mean, he and he juxtaposes, I think, um, somewhat erroneously between what he calls the new medievalism and Wilsonian internationalism. But it's interesting to note how theorists of neoliberalism, which, you know, and I can dig what exactly that means. Uh, I can dig that up uh, by excavating the work of uh, particularly Walter Lippmann, um, who uh, expressed, you know, who um, exerted this great influence on a lot of political theorists and economists over the 20th century in uh, Europe and North America. But the, the interesting thing is when you, um, you know, and I, I asked the medievalists to forgive me, um, you know, you know, give me some patience because I'm, I'm trying to draw parallels and analogies. Um, and so hopefully uh, real distinctions of a critical nature to sort of drawing these comparisons will, will you know, not get bundled up with pedantry. But uh, everybody subscribe while Cal is uh, looking through whatever he has to look it, through. Can I just jump in sure. and say uh, my dinner is Ooh. imminent and I've got about 10 minutes left. Um, All right. 10 minutes concentrating on Alex. I want to make sure that we no, get no, as much uh, out of. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to hijack. I was just saying if there are any questions from your audience or from people here today about the Middle Ages, about feudalism, well, about... I, I, I will you know. go ahead because I want to be like Sonic the Hedgehog right now and making sure that I address everything that I want to address with you, Alex, and I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for this. So the first thing oh, that I wanted to get that. into... Well, the first thing that I, I wanted to get into, and then and then to worry, at Cal, we're going to definitely get into it, but the first thing that I wanted to get into here with Alex is... Um, this idea that people have about there being this, uh, you know, um, balance of power that would have occurred where you have the people and then the king and then the nobility where, let's say, the nobility would have been up to no good, then the people would have been able to call upon the king for help. So that was the argument that was made in previous BTR episodes about, like, right. well, we think that the United States has this, uh, you know, uh, you know, balance of power. Well, there was balance of power back then, too, and people mm. weren't that screwed when it comes to uh, the uh, lower classes, you know, the uh, peasants, that they actually had a way to, uh, you know, challenge uh, power. Sure. So, Alex, go for it. 
Okay. Um, and again, you know, health warnings, this is my own view based on expertise about the evidence. I'm sure the other medievalists will have different, well, they might have different views. Um, balance of power in the Middle Ages, yeah, uh, it, it depends. Uh, it, it differs from polity to polity. Sometimes you have uh, somewhere where the crown authority is very low um, in sort of early, uh, after the Carolingian Empire that Nigel mentioned uh, collapses, you know, French uh, political royal authority is, is diminished. And so the power of the king is uh, non-existent outside of his own royal estates, really. So the sort of kingdom of France is fractured and he's, he's held in check by other great lords like the Duke of Normandy, the Counts of Anjou, the Counts of Flanders, who are essentially equals really to the king um, and can wage war against him without being called rebels. You know, um, the king is pretty much primus inter pares, first among equals in that situation. Uh, however, again, in, in post-conquest England after 1066, William the Conqueror is immensely powerful and is, and is uh, you know, after he's dealt with the English and all the rebels, after the sort of first five years, he's in a very strong position in the 1070s and 1080s, um, where the aristocracy are a bit under his heel. Now, that's not to say he has absolute power. No medieval ruler has absolute power. They always have to depend on the support of the clergy, the support of the aristocracy. But there are variations within that spectrum. When it comes to the people in the Middle Ages, um, they don't really have much of a say. Uh, and peasant, re peasant rebellions and peasant revolts do happen, but they are brutally put down every time they come around. Um, the king is anointed by God. How dare you raise your flag against him? God will smite you, and that will be in the form of his sword, the king's sword. You know, you're a peasant. You live in a very flammable house. Um, the king and his men will come around and kill you. So, but that's not to say that Again, I'm, I mentioned the, the, the reciprocal obligations, you know, that you are supposed to protect the peasantry. Yes, they are exploited. I mean, you can talk about serfdom in the Middle Ages. There are, you know, people who are tied to the land are essentially slaves. Christ, they're Christians, so of course we don't do slavery until, the, until much later. Um, and that's another horrible concept which uh, doesn't appear in the Middle Ages. But really, they are slaves in all but name. They are tied to the land. Their entire lives are more or less decided by their lords in some cases. You, you know, you are going to be shoveling shit for me for the rest of your life. Is that that's the sort of thing. If you don't like it, tough, you know, um, good luck to you elsewhere. Um, but sometimes the peasantry can appeal to the king as a way to sort of, you know, escalate to go above your direct line manager. If your lord is being really shit, you can go above his head and go to the Lord and, and appeal to the King and King John in Magna Carta, even though the barons, you know, are giving him a hard time. He, tr he there's a little bit of uh, posturing and he tries to present himself as, as the common people's champion, getting a few things into Magna Carta that, that are protecting the, the peasants against sort of baronial, you know, uh, aristocratic exploitation but but really by and large um the peasants do not have a voice it's not democratic society um and and they have they have very little option uh, very few options but but the aristocracy and the king certainly do um do do compete for power in, in, in that political arena and of course social social mobility is virtually non-existent in the middle ages um uh, that that's another thing if you're a peasant you're a peasant for life you know you might change your station a little bit but you know there's no success stories of peasants going up to become the earl of northumbria 
Well, before before you go, I want to make sure that we get a reply from Gio. I see Gio is a. Uh, his gears are turning and we had a conversation about this before so would there be anything any counter argument to that mm -hmm. anything that you would add to uh uh maybe look at the situation from a different lens or is alex pretty much pretty much right there's no there's no leeway here yeah no i it's true uh it just it reminds me of i i guess i'm interested in the sort of break into if there even was a break into like our modern notion of power it reminds me very much of like the one essay by michelle foucault about the power over life and death is like really the 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 most substantial that uh, avenue of power. You the king literally has power over the life of the citizenry rather than the production or the maintenance of life. It very much, in some ways, is a passive, uh, not passive, but it's very much so. Uh, how shall I say? It's very clear where you stand in, in that era. Whereas by the time mercantile and sort of uh, the the more uh, non-agrarian forms of power came about that were not as much tied to the land then things become rather complicated and yes, I that's think, true yeah and i think that's what people in some ways there there's the other argument that when it comes to medieval serfdom <clears throat> there was not just a more enumerated series of, of hierarchical power, but also uh, the the intervention. I think like from what a lot of people say that have more of a, a favorable picture of it, the sort of the intervention in one's daily life by the king or by the aristocracy was a lot more minimal than say um, what we know nowadays is like the modern managerial state. And of course, like the, there's no comparison because we have so, so much of a, different understanding with uh, advances in technology and, and uh, the way the capital and, and property has manifested. Uh, but it's just, I don't know, it seems that a lot of people, uh, they, they look at medieval serfdom uh, and it, there's a lot of misconceptions about it that I think people, I don't know, you know what I mean? They don't. Uh, well, people are also there, concerned about today. There's a different rel relation to power than like what we know nowadays as like, mm this sort of the managerial class is almost like I, I don't wait, wait, just to be clear, uh, aristocracy. Uh, so. Alex, do you know what yeah. Geo means by managerial class? Just so we're all on the same page. Um, do you mean like sort of uh, state bureaucracy? Yeah. Yeah. Like the bureaucratic state, I guess. You could yeah. Say, yeah. And, 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 you know, state bureaucracy is less sophisticated in the middle ages, of course. And, 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 you know, technology has invited um, far more intrusion into our daily lives. That's true. Uh, but 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 don't forget that um, uh, serfs were were even though they might not have seen their lord every day and he might not have been you know invading their homesteads every day um, they could do very if you were a dependent uh, tenant if you were a dependent peasant uh, peasant tied to the land you could do very little by way of life choices without permission mm. from your without permission from your lord which of course. We, you know, we, we, we can do these things now. Um, of course, the, the state is much bigger, it's much more powerful. Um, uh, but, you know, you, you're, you're broadly free to do what you want, providing you don't break the law, you can marry whoever you want, you can move to a different place if you get a job, you know, mm. the, 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 these were just not these were just not options for a lot of people um, in, in medieval England. Um, oh, but I can't I talk about Europe, everywhere like if, else. If you want to make a cabin somewhere, in uh, Europe, I believe it's incredibly hard to just go in the woods 
like they uh like they phrase it online and just settle <laughs> down somewhere in the forest and you know just chill uh, you know relax there because there's all these especially in england you know there's this meme about license do you have a license you know like <laughs> there's just all this crap that seems to be layered and layered and layered but, they, upon but at the same time there, there was a radically different notion of what it means to be a subject back then than nowadays and i think yeah. like that that i mean that goes without saying obviously and i i think that um it's it's very difficult to sort of uh to go back into the past and be like well what if that could work today i mean i think that <laughs> yeah yeah and, and just like not to say that uh like you were saying, life as a medieval peasant, I mean, even just their place in the world and their, their view of the world is fundamentally different because of various factors like the predominant, uh, The I think another thing that doesn't come up a lot or that not in this discussion is that uh, the, the role of that sort of the mediary of the church in that equation as well, which I think is another yeah. thing we can look at the, the in how it's different from what we know is like a sovereign state because yes. the, the Catholic church, for instance, had a lot of immense political power in a lot of different areas for sure, for sure. That, that didn't have. Um, so, and I guess what would be interesting to talk about is how that transition from not just secularization, but also the, the fall into like the West, all we know is like the Westphalian state and how like, the, did they didn't even have, if I recall like in, in the medieval period, they didn't even have a notion of like the state as we know of now. Right. So no. yeah, uh, German, it, it's, the... it's not a simple answer to that question. Mm. Some medievalists say there was no such thing as the medieval state and others will disagree. I think, you know, for convenience, you can talk about a medieval state, but you have to apply lots of caveats and qualifications mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. Certainly nothing like, as I say, the sort of modern bureaucratic state existed in, in the Middle Ages, but do not, do not underplay the sophistication for one thing. Um, I, I don't want to be a negative Nancy and say peasants were, you know, being killed every day and they were starving to death every day. That, that wasn't the case. You know, peasants were, often they were more than subsistence farmers. Um, you know, the, and there was a there was a market for for selling grain. I mean, that's how lords made their money. Um, so, um, and they yeah. had a lot of holidays too, right? They had a lot of saints' days where they wouldn't do. There any were lots work. of days where God, yes, prohibited them from work. Um, but Not it wasn't a... it wasn't like you could sort of run away to the woods and sort of chill out, as you said, and, and build a cabin or whatever. You know, your 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 life was was, was fairly regimented. Oh no, well, but uh, there's an old custom that if a serf escapes into a town and stays for a year and a day, he becomes free. Stadtluft macht frei, for example. I'm not familiar with that particular case, yeah, but yes, um, a very old custom in England and Germany. Uh, we have a co we have a comment from Otto von Bismarck. I'm very grateful for this. Bismarck, Bismarck. Oh, I hate Bismarck. I hate I hate joining I us, joining I us in the chat. Guy. That is a great honor. I mean, but, he annexed he annexed Hesse Castle. He 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 spoiled the uh, well the electorate but, of Hanover. But, but anyway, he's coming down from heaven to say uh, you can violate the law anywhere. I can. Oh no, no, that that's not. Oh, here. If I was a serf, I couldn't hunt in the woods. Today, I can't hunt in the woods. I see no difference. Now, obviously, that is a big generalization, <laughs> but I think he points to again this idea that yeah, they, um, they couldn't hunt in the woods because the king owned the the livestock. Yeah. Or yes, he, uh, he was granted to. No, but and I, I, and I, that I, goes for the for the barony yeah. as well. No one could hunt in the king's forests. Um, <laughs> 
regardless, but I mean, if you're a peasant, yeah, they'd probably hang you there and then on the nearest tree. If you're a lord, you, you might get a, a lighter well, sentence. Well, here, here's more of an example. Like what I try to do with BTR is introduce these two different worlds because you are like of this great and powerful academic world that I think needs to talk <laughs> and vice versa with people who are online because for the sake of mutually discovering different things. So I love one... democratization of, you know, academia. Yeah, Absolutely. I love talking about this stuff and I've, in, I've been interested to hear from people today. Well, one last thing that I wanted to uh, leave you with was uh, a comment uh, from Info Warlock, uh, who says, have you heard of the term neo-feudalism or techno-feudalism? The World Economic Forum wants to eliminate private property and everyone just rent everything from them. Now, to be fair, I did have a chance to look at the Great Reset, look at all the things that they said, and it did strike me, you know, as a bit unpleasant, where not that I think that they are going to be able to do it, but with this world that they are trying to showcase to people that you're not you're not going to own anything and you'll be happy if the these were the exact words from uh, that commercial well, well, so I'll if just, they're um, if they're talking about it then i'd be concerned yeah and even the if notion could... of private property in general well, where that well, can, can well, i just Alex, say goodbye yes. guys sorry oh. I, I have got to go um, I, know. I just uh the the info warlock question uh, arouses some suspicion in my mind, um, but I I can't talk about neo feudalism. I, I I know better than to talk about things about which I do not know, um, and uh, it's an un underrated skill I think these days. Uh, neo feudalism though, uh, Frank Herbert Dune, you know you know the novel. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's a really interesting concept. Uh, I would recommend everyone reading Frank Herbert's Magnum Opus Dune. It's really cool. It's like this intergalactic feudal empire where they've got rid of AI and like thinking technology. However, I would <laughs> never, I would never advocate for it for one second. Capitalism is flawed, but it's like democracy, the the best, you know, the worst system apart from all the others. And on that Great. note, good night, good evening. I've really enjoyed chatting with you all. Um, keep reading. Bye bye, everyone. Bye-bye, Alex. Bye. Thank you so much for thank joining you, us. Thank, really thank you for having it. me. Thank you for having me. And guys, you can find Alex's work uh, on his great podcast, and I will link the podcast right now in the description. It is uh, Higgly Piggly History Hodgepod. So I'm going to link it back here in the uh, BTR chat. Be sure to uh, Be sure to follow that. And uh, let me move the other chat window around here. So don't forget to subscribe once again for all the newcomers who are here who don't know what BTR is about. We are bringing different people together for the sake of mutual understanding. This is our mission in life, and it is extremely important. The thing that I brought up right now with the Great Reset, not that I would put that in the framework of neo-feudalism. Of neo I'm not really sure what framework to put that into. Well, I actually, but, if I may just throw sure. out, I was teasing Nigel the other day. Well, we were interacting, and... Um, if you were in the 19th century, one of the strangest and most interesting slave theorists from the United States South is a guy named um, uh, man, no, George just, Fitzhugh. Yeah, Fitzhugh. George Fitzhugh. He's a Virginian, um, but he will talk about you know how great um, the South is, and you know you know the people are mostly common with like oh you know slave society's great. Look, they don't have to own anything. Um, they just work a little bit every day, and they're happy. They never have to take care of themselves. But then he juxtaposes this to northern society where people are, you know, dying in ditches. They're ending up in almshouses, mutilated by these industrial machines. And he actually goes as far to say, he says, you look at the, what these French socialists want, right? And he's talking about the Saint-Simonians uh, and also British Owenites. Um, and um, 
and he said, you know, I think he's even aware of Karl Marx beginning to sort of write, but you know, this isn't, this isn't goes for it. But he says, they want communism. The South has communism. No, no one has to, everyone has a place in the system, the plantation owners, they do the calculations and management, the slaves labor in the fields. They don't have to worry about buying clothes or buying food. It's, it's great, right? You know, and, and so I almost imagine, you know, in a feudal society where the lords encourage their peasants, right, they get to farm, not beyond subsistence, they go to market and sell stuff, they get, you know, you have to provide a cut to your, um, to your feudal lord. But I do think there are parallels, and it's not just crackpots who say stuff like this. If anyone's familiar with the, uh, probably the greatest living economist, uh, Michael Hudson, um, you know, he draws these kinds of comparisons to what's happening um, and, it, and when it comes to capitalism, the main focus, and, and I could go on to this without, I won't belabor the point, um, but it has to do with being able to use liquid capital um, for ownership purposes. It's not about industrialization, it's about financialization, it's about claims and on uh, property rights, uh, not necessarily to take 100%, but to take a cut. Um, you know, this is, you know, it, it's funny that uh, on the um, on his way out, he mentioned Dune, uh, and Dune is basically a parable in some ways for uh, the oil resource wars that take place in the Middle East. Um, so I think there are a lot of parallels that can and should be drawn between the way the world is reconfiguring itself, at least the North Atlantic and uh, medieval society and why that was rejected and how um, it, it continues to rear its head. It wasn't just uh, Southern pro-slavery writers. I've written about this, but like Friedrich Engels had a very positive view of slavery and serfdom. Like, for example, Engels writes in the Principles of Communism from 1847 that the serf possesses and uses an instrument of production, a piece of land, in exchange for which he gives up a part of his product or part of the services of his labor. The proletarian works with the instruments of production of another for the account of this other in exchange for a part of the product. The serf gives up, the proletarian receives. The serf has an assured existence, the proletarian has not. The serf is outside competition, the proletarian is in it. And also in anti-during, he also says that, uh, you know, uh, uh, hold on. It is very easy to inveigh against slavery and similar terms in general terms and to give vent to high moral indignation at such infamies. But this does not tell us as to how these institutions arose, why they exist and what role they played in history. When we examine these questions, we're compelled, we're compelled to say, however contradictory and heretical it may sound, that the introduction of slavery under the conditions prevailing at that time was a great step forward. For it is a fact that man sprang from the beasts and had, consequ had consequently to use barbaric and almost bestial means to extricate himself from barbarism. Where the ancient communities have continued to exist, they have for thousands of years formed the base of the cruelest form of state, oriental despotism from India and Russia. It was only where these communities dissolved that the peoples made progress of themselves and their next economic advance consisted in the increase and development of production by means of slave labor. It is clear that so long as human labor was still so little productive that it provided but a small surplus 
over and above the necessary means of subsistence. Any increase of the productive forces, extension of trade, development of the state of law, of foundation of art and science was possible only by a greater division of labor. And the necessary basis for this greater division of labor between the masses discharging simple manual labor and the few privileged persons directing labor, conducting trade and public affairs, the simplest and the most natural form was in fact slavery. In the historical conditions of the ancient world and particularly of Greece and advance, the advance to a society based on class antagonisms could be accomplished only in the form of slavery. And in fact, in the 16th century, the German legal humanist Ulrich Zassius said that, oh boy, my notes are so sprawling here, guys, hold on. So Ulrich Zassius said basically that, uh, uh, slavery is not good absolutely, but slavery was invented so that captives in war would not be killed. So in a sense, slavery was progressive for its time, which, you know, a lot of people would be absolutely shocked to hear that, but that's what the Marxists themselves thought, interestingly enough. Well, for, so for, for John Locke makes time, the same that's argument. A, and uh, Dr. Ooh. Watson has his uh, hand over here. So uh, Dr. Watson, I would love for uh, your response, but also I come from uh, St. Petersburg, Russia originally. And so when it comes to uh, my... Uh, ancestors you know half of them were in the nobility half of them were in a uh, uh, serfdom and uh, that was not a great existence as far as just the psychological damage that occurred to people over a long time especially like uh, back when russians were under the thumb of the golden horde you know that was a serfdom as well and then afterwards with the czars that still continued this you know the sense of dehumanization that they endured it turned them more into animals than people you know, just the kind of conditions they were living in. And, uh, you know, I don't I don't see it as being any... And I understand uh, the point, though, that was made by Nigel, that for its time, you know, as opposed to killing people during wartime, that would have been, you know, the next step. But Dr. Watson, take it away. Oh, yeah, yeah. no, just, I mean, it, 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 not necessarily an observation on a sort of grand scale, but I, I, I do think... Just with regard to, to to some of the quotes that were were brought up there, I do think it's important that we dis, that we distinguish between medieval serfdom as it existed in you know medieval Scotland, England, France, Western Europe, I suppose as a whole, um, and further east, um, and the kind of racialized slavery of six well certainly 17th century onwards um 16th century onwards i suppose in terms of those writers that were referenced Engels and so forth um i do also think it's important to bear in mind that the those conclusions are not necessarily based on close examination of the medieval sources. Um, the Engels quote in particular struck me that um, he didn't seem to have a particularly firm grasp, even by 19th century standards of what constituted um, serfdom, because um, of, of course serfs didn't own the land that they tilled. They were considered property a lot you know they, they were tied to the land that they worked 
Well, I mean, but it on behalf of their lord who owned, um, who were still alienated from their labor, in other words. But but it, it just because they didn't have like a freehold doesn't necessarily mean they didn't own it. I and mean, this is a very complicated question because like between ownership and possession or the enjoying the rights of usufruct. I mean, one of my favorite examples actually. In medieval England, there was this institution that was called the Corodium, the Corody, where if a peasant laborer, whether free or unfree, uh, paid a lump sum to a prior or abbot, he was entitled to a lifetime supply of food and drink. I mean, no modern welfare state can possibly be as generous as that. So, like, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, distinctions to be made here and uh, not to mention i mean uh, serfs or or tenant laborers in manners they had very strong system of customary law and they had access to the justice you know through the court baron or the court leet so you know they weren't like disenfranchised people you know they had access to the royal justice by means of the baronial courts who would you know uh, legislate on things like for example in, encroachment of neighboring property you know, they guaranteed them a certain, you know, a certain, uh, their allocated lots, you know, a certain integrity to their, to the lands that they tilled, whether or not they owned labor services, because, you know, by the, I think by the 13th century, by and large, like most of the Corvée labor was pretty much commuted to cash rents anyway, so... But yeah, but, go, but go this on. is a different view than let's say we were talking with Alex before, because Alex was making quite a strong uh, argument for the lifestyles of the serfs to be mostly, you know, shit. To be mostly, you know, just being, uh, you know, s subjugated by the uh, elites of the time, by the nobility as well as the king. So well, to question the king would be to question God. So who are you, peasant, to question the king? Like. What would be your response to that? Because I think this is getting into the root of the uh, disagreement here. Well, you you can't question the king, but you can always question his ministers. That's that's the way you get around things, you know, uh, historically. But also, we really have to talk about the meaning of liberty and freedom, because in the medieval sense, the term liberty has two distinct meanings. One is what in the Holy Roman Empire was called immediacy. So... A free man is someone who is subject only to royal justice and no one else. He was not subject to the justice of the jurisdiction of intermediary lords. But there's a second definition of liberty, which means basically privilege or franchise. So, you know, like there would be these charters of rights for the towns, for the territories. Uh, Rosie's writing something. Uh, I'm really you know, sorry. I have to jet. I actually have class. So, well, Rosie, I really appreciate you coming in and I would love to have you back. And uh, please also, before you go, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, chicken farm that I know it's a hobby farm, but still it's uh, it's quite something. Uh, it's just essentially with the pandemic, our family's been outside a lot more and um, we decided to till our land. So we have a very heavily forested land here. And my, my father actually planted the trees years and years ago when we bought um, my childhood property. So we decided to till the land, start a farm, 
and we have hens, which I'm in love with, and I hug every day. <laughs> uh, now that's the medieval mindset right there, Liv. There you see. That is that is amazing. <laughs> and so, Rosie, I wish the very best for you, you, the entire family, your kids, and the chickens. And I can only hope to get to that same level uh, one day, and uh, hopefully I will. And with your help, with help to contributing to BTR through Super Chats, by the way, there's been no Super Chats yet. What's going on? Send the Super Chats right now, because Dr. Watson also has to go in 10 minutes. So, uh, Rosie, thank you so much, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. So, uh, Dr. Watson, uh, I want to uh, make sure that we are able to... Uh, uh, you know, get to the good stuff here, get to the meat of the argument. And Nigel, would you be able to help me do this in a way? Like, what do you think right now between you and Dr. Watson? What do you think is the most contentious point? What do you think is the point that you would be, you know, arguing about and trying to get to the root of that you would? I mean, I mean, uh, he, uh, he was talking about racialized slavery, which I do not disagree with. I mean, obviously, like serfdom and the Atlantic sla slave trade are very different, although I would also add that, you know, not, ju not just the Atlantic slave trade, but the Arab slave trade as well. And also mm -hmm. the slave raids by the Crimean Tatars in Ukraine or the slave raids by Barbary pirates who abducted many Christian Europeans. So those are, those are very different things, right? Of course, like sla slavery and serfdom are not the same thing at all. They're very, yeah. very different. Although, very although different in Russia, things. I would say they were closer. Like uh, yeah, Moscovite Musco 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 serfdom was more harsh, although I, I'm not as knowledgeable on, on Muscovite serfdom, but yeah, I've heard it's more, it was harsher than the Western European model. Yeah. But, but also, uh, yeah, go on. The, the nobility was not as free as you might think. I mean, after all, these are men who are grown, who owe military service. You know, in a sense, they're obligated to die. They're obligated to fight. And not just that, but, for example, in Prussia, the nobility could not, for example, leave their lands without the permission of the king. If they were, they were immediately disinvested of their fiefs. And also historically, although not really, not really in England so much, and that's actually one of the unique characteristics of the English gentry, but the French and German nobility, they were for a very long time, they were prohibited from engaging in commerce. They cannot engage in bourgeois trade or else they lose their, their noble status. And in addition, uh, yeah, so, oh man, I lost my turn of thought. Well, uh, Dr. Watson, would you agree with everything that's been said so far because uh, from uh, Nigel? Because I want to figure out, again, not to turn this into a, you know, into a uh, jousting tournament. But at the same time, I want to see, like, whether there are certain things that are, you know, completely, <laughs> yes, completely uh, dis disagreed upon as far as the conceptions of the world here. Um, I mean, certainly, I, I would absolutely agree that... Um aristocratic freedoms and noble freedoms as say 14th 15th century Scottish um, aristocrats would have understood them um, and for which in a Scottish context um, the authors or author of the declaration of our birth claim that the Scots were fighting um, are different fundamentally than what we would think of as freedoms um i think one of the issues that then looking back and saying oh 
you know, what, you know, that we would be willing to give up um, free, you know, freedoms that we here have um, in favor of going back to something more in line with, again, just to pick an example that I'm, I'm particularly familiar with 14th and 15th century Scotland, because people seem to be reasonably, you know, happy with their lot in um, 14th and 15th century Scotland, aside from sort of, you know, quite specific grievances, like, you know, in 1306, Robert Bruce really, really wants to be king, but, you know, nobody will let him until, you know, he, he stabs John Common and makes a, a break for it, or, you know, that the Bruces really want to be king, uh, Bruce's grandfather really wants to be king in 1292, uh, but the, uh, you know, Edward I finds in favour of his rival, John Balliol. I think we have we have to bear in mind that expressed satisfaction and apparent satisfaction and so forth, um, stability in medieval systems. We have the luxury of comparison that those people don't. Um, you know, to say that, well, you know, serfs were happy with the opportunity that maybe one day they might escape, and if they can stay on the run for a year or stay in another town for, for a year and then they sort of get off on a technicality. <laughs> to say that they were happy with that or satisfied with that, they kind of don't necessarily know that there's an alternative or they think that the alternative is worse. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, they, yeah. You know, they think the alternative is getting hanged. Um, but, that, but that's a very I, interesting I'm, I'm question. Not, entirely sure that, that that those kind of comparisons are necessarily helpful or at least i would say that the discipline of history um as we practice it isn't really very good at answering those questions well, well yeah there, there, there are there are so, 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 there are certain subjective things i would say for me personally when it comes to if you lock somebody up in the in a bottle like let's say there was somebody you locked up in a bottle from a young age and they would live in the bottle and then they would conform, their body would conform to the bottle and that would be their life. That would be a pretty bad life. Or if you were subjected to living in a box where people would just feed you food and then like slap you around, that would be a pretty bad life. We can all agree none of us would want to yeah. live like that. So when it comes to, I think, the dissatisfaction, this is kind of why, even though we're talking about the medieval times, why I think a parallel could be drawn when it comes to feudalism and the way that people are increasingly, let's say the people who are more online talking amongst each other are increasingly nervous about certain patterns that they're seeing with this powerful bureaucracy is they don't want to be in the stage of, as they call, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to live in the pod. I don't want to eat the bugs. They don't want to be these entities that are reliant upon this higher authority to tell them what they are or not not allowed to do and they could have let's say choices in look at all this entertainment look at all these this bread and circus that you could enjoy on your little screen but as far as certain things that again to talk about like the braveheart quote what was it like uh uh, how does that go about living? Uh, where they can take our lives, but they can never take our freedom. That's, well, that that's one. The... But then, but then there's the other <laughs> quote about uh, uh, 
everybody dies, but not everybody gets to oh, yeah. live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So when it comes to something like that, I mean, look, it's very easy for me and everybody else sitting in the warmth of their home to talk about like, oh, if only we were on this great adventure and, you know, fighting with swords and stuff like that. We did not grow up in that environment, so we would probably mm. suck at it royally right now. But I think, at the but si- I think but, Lev, to be yeah. fair, it's, it's more of... Um... Not like fighting with swords, like some like Renaissance fair LARPing, but more of uh, I think it's it's a question of like what one values in a particular social arrangement, and in a lot of ways, it's impossible to know truly what it was like back then. But at the same time, I would say that this goes back to again another thing that Nigel talks uh, writes about a lot, which is the notion of like Whig history and what people mean by progress into a, a different social arrangement as opposed to a past one. And that is, I feel, a very contentious debate that's very complex. And what we even know of as the progression of history itself is also debatable. So I think that's what, um, yeah, that, that could kind of like be a, a talk, a, a way of getting around the issue as well. And also just like how, we went from that feudal arrangement to what like a modern uh like nation state uh like political whether it's parliamentary or bureaucratic sort of sovereign notion of power and how this came from you know power based on very much agrarian feudalism to like you know then the mercantile class and industrialization about you know all that sort of thing but so i think that's a good way of picturing the debate is what do people value in society and and um what uh social arrangements are more befitting of a certain order that extends beyond just politics itself into like the heart of uh, a people and so forth i think that, oh, well, that was, yeah what i was gonna say Lev, before i lost my train of thought is that for example the nobility in the holy roman empire they were subject to what was known as the imperial Oleg council which was sort of like the Supreme Court, which uh, adjudicated on questions of like noble lineage and noble estate. And also in France, you had the letters du cachet. So basically, if a peer of the nobleman filed a complaint to the king, for example, uh, especially in the 18th century, nobles had this like habit, this very bad habit of gambling away their fortunes. And very often, they would end up ruining their entire familial patrimony. And so like, you know, one of their peers, like say like the uncle or whoever would write to the king a, to issue a letter du cachet to have them imprisoned, you know, without trial, uh, detain them in order you know, to stop them from, you know, destroying their patrimony. And you, you are always under this uh, implicit threat that, you know, if, if you don't uh, act within, you know, these certain norms of piety, you are subject to some severe consequence. So in a certain sense, you can't really say that the nobility was free in any modern sense or that, you know, uh, so the, the line between a nobleman and the serf is actually, they have a lot in common, actually. Uh, neither, neither of them are free men in the liberal sense. They have very strong obligations. And if you do not live up to these obligations, then God help you. Well, that, that's so, the other idea of freedom as being freedom for from desire. 
And it's interesting that this kind of system course, would, in the, a way, enforce... The Aristotelian freedom, yeah. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah, of course. B but then, uh, Dr. Watson, would you then give room to, let's say, obviously, we can't really compare our world today to the world before, but would you say that something like that would, let's say, balance things out a little bit more, where it wouldn't be this, this image people may have of this, uh, this nobleman, you know, ransacking the village and just slapping people around and doing all kinds of horrible things, where maybe there was some kind of a churchly influence for people to act according to the program, according to the system, or was it a pretense and behind the scenes, if we were to take a time machine, we'd probably see all kinds of, you know, sa uh, savagely acting nobles, you know, taking their anger out on the uh, poor peasants. Um, I mean, I, I, certainly, you know, the, 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 the rule of law does exist in, in, um, medieval societies and and you know individuals were constrained both by kind of societal norms but also by by you know actual legal um restraints um the uh, the church does play its part but there's there's plenty of um you know the church doesn't always cover itself in glory in in a medieval context um, I mean, we talked about um, uh, serfdom a bit in Scotland. Um, the church plays quite a, it, it seems, uh, quite a significant role in the, the preservation of, of nathdom, as it's, as it's known in, um, in Scotland, into the 14th century. Lots of um, the, the later surviving documents uh, that we have regarding serfdom, and particularly the nabbing of fugitive serfs and dragging them back to where they belong um, is done on behalf of abbots um, and, and done on behalf of, of um, religious foundations. Um, you know, I, again, I know I keep sort of dragging it back to, to, to be specifically about Scotland, but well, this is your Scotland. expertise. This you're a doctor, and this is yeah. your expertise. And I'm really, <laughs> and it's such a rare thing for us to have a doctor present here who is an expert on this. So please, go for it. I, yeah, no, I yeah. mean, you know, Scotland is by and large, although it, you know, it does have this reputation as being the kind of rough and ready, brave heart kind of, you know, Highland warrior -y, Highlander. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There can only this, be one. This, this, yeah, this this very rough and lawless place. Actually, it is for the most part um, surprisingly stable. Um, the Scottish political community is very very um, conservative throughout the period and and works very hard uh, to maintain a sense of of you know the, the community of the realm. Um, and you know when there are rumbling you know whenever there are there you know there is a block or a faction that is seen to be working against the um the crown best example of this i would say in the 1450s there is a very very um serious and often violent um uh conflict between the crown and the black douglases who i mentioned before this is the kind of offspring of of um archibald the grim sort of three generations hence from him um james ii is very very suspicious of the black douglases and for a few years um from a period of about 1450 through to 1455 the two 
sides, the crown on the one hand and the Black Douglases on the other are kind of at loggerheads with each other. The community, the three estates, as they're increasingly calling themselves at that point, um, their initial reaction is to try and work out a, a compromise between the two. They really, you know, every time one side or the other tries to whip the community up to kind of, you know, let's get out there and sort this thing out. Um, the three estates are very eager to get the two sides sat down. Really, they can't get them in the same room, but at least to get their representatives in the same room to talk this out, to draw a written agreement, something legal that can be held over the, their heads to um, to settle things. And after two or three of these settled arrangements have failed, once it becomes clear that this these tensions can only be solved by the destruction of one party or the other, the community throws itself wholeheartedly behind the king and just goes, yeah, let's just drive the Black Douglases out of this place because they would much rather see the crown preserved than they would, you know, let this, let these tensions be settled on the battlefield by, by some kind of uh, civil strife. Um, so, you know, medieval societies do have rules both formal and informal that, that kind of um, hold society together. Um, they are, I mean, I think it comes back to something that we were talking about when, when Alex was still here, you know, the, the, the main distinction between medieval societies and, and sort of early modern and even modern societies is not so much that they don't have um, reasonably sophisticated legal systems. It's that they, they kind of lack centralized, sophisticated bureaucracies. Um, yeah, absolutely. But whether I think then that, I mean, I think it's a, a really a matter of sort of personal um, preference whether you think that is better or not and I think the, how does the church not operate functionally as a state allied bureaucracy it, uh, the way it records and collects data uh, it kind of regulates uh, social beliefs uh, engages in forms of corporate welfare I mean, it has uh, jurisdiction over wills and testaments historically, as well as marriage. So, yeah, it's kind of like also ecclesiastics were not subject to secular courts historically. So, well, and I, and I, and I mean, the clergy do do provide medieval kingdoms with their kind of administrative apparatus. I mean, I mentioned earlier on um, the uh, the chancery for it during the period thirteen oh six through to 1328, so all but one year of, of Bruce's, um, Robert the Bruce's reign, Rob, Rob, King Robert the First, um, the chancery is situated at Arbroath uh, because Bernard, the abbot of Arbroath, is the, the chancellor. Um, and so a vast amount of the, the kind of administration of the realm is done, um, certainly in terms of the sort of written administration of the realm, is done at um, Arbroath. Um, for Scotland, um, the I mean, Scotland takes much longer to develop a, a, um, a, a kind of centralised um, administration and a centralised bureaucracy than, than England does. Um, not really until kind of the late 15th, early 16th century that 
Edinburgh is really established as the capital um, is partly because Scottish kings remain itinerant. Um, the community, it seems, much prefers to have the king moving around as much as possible, making appearances in the regions, in the localities, um, to personally reinforce royal authority. Again, the reasons behind that are sort of a little bit difficult to, to determine. It just, it seems to be a, a kind of preference thing. It probably in, initially um, relates to the fact that obviously communications in Scotland are a little bit more complicated, passing from the Highlands to the Lowlands, passing into the far west where you have, um, it's a shame actually Rosie isn't here because she might have been able to talk about this better than I am, you know, but but pushing royal authority out into the Isles, into the Hebrides in the west um, is very, very difficult. Not only are you crossing very difficult territory, you know, if you're going out in the Isles, you're crossing the sea even, but you are crossing linguistic divides. Um, you know, you are passing from English, that is Scots speaking um, areas of Scotland into Gaelic speaking Scotland. Now, some kings of Scots, Robert the First, um, Robert Bruce is a good example of this, almost certainly do speak both languages. Uh, same is probably true of his grandson, um, Robert the uh, Second, who spends a lot of his time governing from Perth, which is much more central um, uh, within Scotland than, you know, the big um, uh, you know, the, the sort of modern capital, Edinburgh. Um, so some kings of Scots, James IV as well, do speak both languages, so can travel between these places and um, be understood relatively easily and, and uh, you know, communicate with subjects in those areas in their own cultural idioms. Some do not, as far as we can tell, um, and do then have to rely on local intermediaries, whether it is uh, magnates or the clergy in those areas to actually sort of facilitate those conversations. Um, but anyway, guys, I am going to have to bow out now. <laughs> Dr. Um, Watson, thank it, you so much for uh, joining us. Thank you. And what would you like to plug before you go? Um, yeah, I, I guess the blog. That's that's where most of my, um, most of my work goes. Um, there's now, I think, well, this will be the third year of doing it, or maybe the fourth year. Um, so yeah, it's night, night of the two L's. Um, uh, there's loads and loads of material on there on 14th and 15th century Scotland. And now that I'm furloughed, most of my days have spent <laughs> producing more stuff for it. So there's always, always stuff going. And you're going also in the Antique Society, right? Yes. Yeah. So the, the late Antique and Medieval Postgraduate Society um uh, that i helped found at the university of edinburgh um they are ostensibly a, a student organization um uh they do weekly during term time they do weekly um uh what's the uh, seminars um sort of work in progress seminars for people to come along so it's a really good um opportunity to to hear some new research coming out in the in the field not all necessarily related to, to um scottish medieval history um, they do a, a conference every year, really, really good again for sort of post-grads and early career researchers to get their research out um, to, to a wider audience. And they also do, um, at the moment, all online uh, uh, social events. So Saturday, 
for example, uh, in the afternoon, they have a storytelling session where everyone's going to come along with their favorite kind of medieval tales to, to share with one another. Um, so yeah, definitely get, give those guys a, 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 a follow on um, Twitter and they have a Facebook page as well that you can like keep in. What is their, uh, what is their Twitter account handle? Uh, I think it's at Lamps Edinburgh. Let me just, so it's all, all caps Lamps. Um, I think it might actually be underscore Edinburgh. Yes, so it's at Lamps all caps underscore and then Edinburgh with a capital E. Edinburgh, not the uh, easiest word in the world to write, but I shall uh, make my uh, <laughs> attempt here. And the University of uh, another account that I'll, uh, I guess I'll plug my my um, work. I, I work for at Bannockburn NTS, the, the Battle of Bannockburn uh, Visitor Centre, and we we do put a lot of interpretive material out there, again on mostly on early 14th century Scottish stuff. So um, be sure to check that out too, guys. And uh, here is your Twitter. So everybody, follow Doctor Watson on Twitter right now. Do it. Do it. Do it. <laughs> Doctor Watson, thank you, thank you so much for joining us. It was a great right. pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. So now we have uh, Apex. We have uh, Nigel and we have Cal. And I know, Cal, you have a bone Let's to pick fight. with... Uh, <laughs> you have a bone <laughs> to pick with Nigel. And uh, once again, everybody, please don't forget to subscribe. And uh, But before that, I also just wanted to get just like a general layout of uh, what you guys thought of the previous conversation as far as... I really try to bring in people who are from, uh, you know, uh, higher education uh, into this. Ken, I know that you guys are also in higher education as far as uh, your own pursuits, not really guided by uh, a professor or class or anything of that sort. So uh, what are your impressions just of uh, having this kind of conversation? And uh, l let me know. I mean... Uh, certainly Dr. Watson was very erudite. I mean, he truly is. Like, I did read his blog. His, his attention to detail is very impeccable in Scottish history. Uh, and, yeah, like, the, the other people, you know, they, they had some insights too, you know, but in general, like, they didn't have that much time to say much, so. But. Well, I want to keep doing more of uh, these things because uh, there is, like I always say, that there is this big divide, and I want to start uh, narrowing that divide and break all the bubbles. And, you know, you, you heard all the stuff. You know what I'm getting at. Anyway, uh, Cal, take it the, away. Uh, the struggle with uh, academics yeah. uh, is, is always being able to balance between uh, having a big picture and having something to actually say versus detail, um, being detail-oriented. Um, and so you will find people on both sides and uh, people on the internet are particularly attracted to, you know, you, you can also see that too. You get people like Nigel writing really dense arcane accounts of feudal law and you'll have people who want to give an explanation on 3000 years of history written in a thousand word post or something. So it's, it's a struggle to maintain both. And, you know, you, you see that everywhere. It's definitely hard, but, uh, I still am not completely sure. I'd have to look at the uh, podcast again. But where do you think the main differences lie between uh, the academic perspective and uh, some of the perspectives that were uh, talked about here as far as the way that uh, the uh, uh, Middle Ages are seen? I mean, I thought that uh, there was a lot that you guys agreed on as well. But uh, curious, uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just that 
the sad thing in a lot of academia is they don't train you as much to be a, um, especially in history, you can become basically an archivist. Your ability, you know, your ability to actually engage with primary sources is always going to be very limited. You only have so much time in the day. You can only read so much. You only have so much access to things. And on the one hand, it does sometimes create a level of humility that, you know, you only really know this kind of very small thing. Um, but of course, you know, this is why it's sad that hermeneutics are not taught well in many university systems. You know, it's not just about... Um, reading a text it's also being able to understand the text and you know you have to sort of approach it in, in the right way and unfortunately academia can on the one hand uh kind of uncritically give you a set of hermeneutical tools um sometimes this is reduced crudely down to the masters of suspicion you know marx freud and um and nietzsche and then you know you, you get different combinations of these like foucault is very much a, an interesting combination um and foucault is taken almost as a dogmatic hermeneutical figure that most people don't even know that they're thinking through when they're writing or reading text. Uh, but then the other thing Nor is- Nor have they read him a lot. Oh, that's <laughs> like also that true. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, there's so much pressure to sort of use these theories or they're just so um, sublimated that you don't actually spend any time reading uh, any of this stuff. And then on top of it, there's a, there's a huge pressure to participate in basically a giant scholastic web called uh, historiography. And you can spend years of just trying to master the historiographical um, lineage on a, on a given topic. And I mean, it gets really, really narrow sometimes. And you, there are, you know, as soon as you start to expand out, uh, it balloons with hundreds, if not thousands of books and journal articles and so on. And you just become basically a librarian because all you can do is you can sort these things into a kind of chronology of arguments, but that doesn't mean you actually understand anything. Or does it mean you actually read any read anything with any attention? And I've meet I meet people I've met people who are just like walking talking historiographical essays. You can't like they just cite things. It's like who who talks like this? But um, I, I I don't know. Just, there are limits, and sometimes being a weirdo on the internet gives you a level of freedom to pursue interesting combinations or ask much more penetrating questions than you are allowed in academia. And, um, you know, and, and there's, you know, there are also the social pressures of being a part of a guild. Um, and you have expectations on pleasing certain people, speaking to certain audiences. Well, that happens on both, uh, on both sides. That happens yeah. when yeah, it comes that is to true. Uh, academia. And let's, and let's face it, like the, uh, there is a circle, the wagon. Only this side, sometimes. it's like even, I would argue that sometimes right. like being an online weirdo, it's, in some ways, it could be a bit even more stifling. And well, no, not really. I shouldn't say that because if you're in academia and you say the wrong thing, you could like have your career mm. taken away. But here, it's more of like you have to follow like a certain, like I'm part of this certain cult of personality, and then it's like, you know what I mean. So, right. I mean, there's there's that, and there are also right to just kind of draw another analogy. Right. People sometimes make their careers being an online weirdo, having you know making money from like. Oh, this is what I want to do with my (laughs) But but the difference (laughs) is that you don't have this clerical title, right? You know, you have to rely on your own like wit, which might be kind of ruthless and you know, kind of degenerate in some ways. But um on the other end, right, you don't you can't you don't go around saying, Oh, I'm I'm a PhD, I'm a professor. 
um, which gives you a certain well, kind of now I do, outside I your do circles. have two master's degrees, but that the mm. master's is a new bachelor now. They don't even fucking ignore that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but, no, but, it's but, true. I feel, yeah, yeah. but I, I feel like, um, the, you know, he, there was this one thread by Crumpler, and he's like totally cringe, but you know, I think he, he said this thread against autodidacts because it's totally cope and he feels like he has a right to be an academic because he comes from a rich family like his his old man's a defense contract or something like that but crumpler was kind of, i'm talking about mike i'm talking about m crumps by the way he was right in one sense he said that people that are autodidacts often have like um gaps in their knowledge so they'll create like really baroque systems that only they understand and that's kind yeah, of that's true me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah i'm thinking like i wonder if like crumpler stumbled upon carl's bad back in the day and uh he i know for sure he knows about you i know for sure that's a fact uh Wait, but seriously i know helen andrews knows about me from like years ago for example like she yeah, retweeted yeah. my stuff but then i had to take it down because you know can't be associated with such a you know, I thought only Andrews was based, though. I didn't. I thought. Yeah, but well, yeah, but respectability politics. You know, like it's yeah, it's, it's, it's dangerous. In well, this is, no, this is what we're breaking down. This is what break the rules is breaking down right now. This respectability politics because we do bring <laughs> yeah. people together who otherwise would never be in the same room. But and, I, I uh, wanted to. It's a good balance. So I just wanted nah, to nah, say. No, no, we're breaking down respectability politics by calling each other every slur in the book. That's what we're. Doing. Except for the. Can I, can I say the N word? Can I? No, 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 you can't see the N word of the F word because yeah. you assumingly you would end up at some of these people's I lectures. Say, but, oh, you, you could know, say fuck, you could say fascist, just not the yeah, yeah. <laughs> on this right, platform. Right. You, um, you know, you, you create a level of equality, but in a, in a lecture hall or it's in totally a, different, you know, you're like a noob who's just in the back with your stupid question they don't want to answer. It's like an enlightenment salon almost. Well, now yeah, during, it is a different yeah. Now, now during the, the COVID, thing is, just to toss it out there, in theory, that you know, a academic uh, kind of a mutual, um, you know, peer review process is supposed to keep people honest and not allow ostentatious, baroque structures to occlude the fact that you don't know anything about anything. But then, when you actually, I mean, I, I've seen this more than once, where you start following footnotes. And you realize that like hundreds of, you know, over a hundred books just recycle the same footnote. And then you go back That's to the problem, original yeah. and it's like, you know, you, you follow it back. And then sometimes there've been footnotes that lead to a place where it's just, yeah, I heard a guy say this one time. And it's but that's, from a book that's in like problem, 1913. And especially cytosis, yeah. Especially with like cytosis. <laughs> yeah, that's the uh, that's the Wikipedia term for it. Actually. Oh shit! Really? That's not yeah. like a, a wow. no, no, it's, too? Yeah. What no, it's not it? my it's not my coinage. from like the Wikipedia people. Like yeah. Negligent, negligent. There you go. That's the word for it. No, I noticed that's the problem with uh, having spent quite a bit of time in and outside of grad school on the works of Michel Foucault. It, that's the problem I feel like that's the most readily apparent to understand uh, what do they call it? The Foucault industri industry publishing uh, complex, the Foucault publishing industry, uh, that it is just interpretation of interpretations. And like when you actually read the main sources, it becomes apparent that 
a lot of people in like who have these academic sinecures like it's not that they don't know what they're talking about it's just that they're stretching things so far that it's uh very convenient put it that way when you have a certain ideological position or whatnot Mm. but anyways i think the main what we didn't get to was how is feudalism as a system how did it change and transform and how did it create um the basis from which we know as like modern uh what would you say liberal politics or modernity or whatever i mean there's that in itself is a contentious issue of what would we mean by modernity right uh Ma- like, modernity. i mean what uh, what dr watson said a while ago he said that you know the various feudal incidents like relief were the king started to use them basically as purely a tax mechanism Hmm. and this already like by the 16th century in england like in the 1530s with henry VIII, that's basically exactly what happened like uh, feudalism basically became purely a bunch of taxes on property like all of the any any kind of uh, social significance it may have had was lost so basically feudalism ended pretty much by the 15th century Hmm. in, in any in any real sense uh, as to what replaced it, oh my God! I mean, you know, we talk about the absolute monarchies or the new monarchies, and now one of the primary disagreements between me and Cal is that Cal believes in sovereignty, and I do not. Right, and, which makes uh, you actually much more similar to Jeff Bezos and George Soros than than uh, than you'd like to admit. Well, maybe I am, but you know. But what, what do you disagree that. necessarily? Like, what do you disagree necessarily about? Do you mean the power invested in the sovereign? Like, what is this? Uh... Well, I, I think mean, Schmidt the... fundamentally just has is is right at the, the very basic point that the sovereign mm-hmm. is the one who's able to decide. And to I make the exception, been... yes. No, actually, I I disagree fundamentally because, like, I I was talking about liberties, franchises, and privileges in medieval charters, in a sense. Uh, medieval society was almost like a society of exception writ large because, you know, like every kind of community or state had its own independent ancestral customs, which were confirmed by overlords and, that's and which overlords entr- entrusted to defend themselves, to defend them. And uh, uh, so, you know, like sovereign is he who defines the state of exception. Actually, no, I mean, uh, the the state of exception is a perfectly legal procedure in itself it's it's not that's that's like what schmidt Sch- says that's that's actually that's the it's, oh, it is. well but then schmidt but then like no, but then many, comes many, with the paradox many secondary outside of the law at the same time so. many secondary sources they put the exception as being some kind of extra legal thing but really the exception is part of the law it's this threshold that precludes the, it's a preclusion of the law that create that is the basis of the, 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 state of the law. In, yeah a state of emergency is itself a normal a normative part of like a legal codex like it's not it's not an abrogation of the law at all it's it's a exactly. fulfillment of the law right right yes right. exactly and that's, so, the, the point is though that that becomes clouded um and in the process of feudalization is where that 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 um, prerogative is becomes increasingly clouded by private interests that have links to states. It's not the abolition of states. That's why I don't know where I got cut off before, but I was trying to read from Philip Bobbitt's uh, Shield of Achilles, and that 
he desires and advances a neo-medieval world order. Now, the analogy that's drawn is rather than believing in a um, in a world. I mean, there's this, there's a you know the medieval period. We'll talk very much about a natural world. Um, you know, it's a God-given natural world. But in the neoliberal concept conception, nature is sort of self-fulfilling. So it's you know it's pantheistic more than in uh, than theistic, or maybe the market is sort of a panentheistic entity. But um, what you get is is a desire for the erosion of sovereignty. The ability to decide is reduced to a series of overlapping jurisdictions. Um, and and you, know, you see the increase less, the decrease of political authority or even the, um, the, the sort of complete efface, effacing of political authority, right? And this is the sort of attitude you see in the 90s and the sort of the victory of the of you know the Anglo-American uh, global and the, order and the Californian ideology along with it. Yeah, right, 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 right. So you actually get something like that, and you you know, but of course, it's like who ultimately gets this ability to decide of you know within a, a, a an over a political order, right? Because neoliberalism doesn't want to abolish the state. Uh, neither did the medieval period, where you see feudalization, where states exist, um, but they're 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 constantly hemmed in not just by law but by several obligations and independent orders right and bobbitt will mention you know these arrangements of free cities uh church property um and so on well, and he, the, he makes this as an analogy to like ngos corporations and so on they as, all engage in a mutual partnership to carry out some larger goal as i understand you are a republican right yeah in the in the, in the uh christian and classical sense yeah, well, yeah. well, but the modern republic's lineage is directly from the free imperial city. I mean, in a sense, actually, there were certain parts of Europe which were never subject to European to feudal jurisdiction. One of them was Frisia, you know, the territory like on the coastland between the low count countries in Germany. They, for centuries, they were governed essentially by autonomous village communes, where they elected their own magistrates. There were also certain peasant republics in Dithmarschen, which again had a kind of self-governance. And of course the Swiss communes or the Italian communes, but these were all, all of these communes were essentially degenerate principalities. You know, they were, and in fact, I mean, you talk about things like NGOs and so forth, but like a, rep a republic, literally a republic is a rule by corporation. That's, a, that's exactly what it is. I mean, let's face it. I think so, you too. Uh, I'm I'm actually messaging him right now, but I am I just finished my piece for uh, I am 1776, and you you two would find it fascinating. It's about um, like the the what would you say the the whole uh, corporate corporate rule of internet discourse, and I yeah. used a lot of Giorgio Agamben along with Alexander Bard, friend of the show, Alexander yes. Bard. So about the state of exception and now how uh, we're sort of seeing like a rebirth of like a negative rebirth of the whole like 1990s, like neoliberal, um, the state's not going to matter anymore, but now it's like 10 times more fake and uh, G word. I do want to point out, though, that uh, uh, this kind of delegation to private authority is not at all incompatible with absolutism. I mean, no, that's all, true. It's, Louis, yeah, Louis, that the, true. Louis XIV relied on both uh, venue offices and tax farmers. So, like, uh, 
absolutism does not preclude delegation. Rather, I mean, we don't have to. I mean, maybe Apex abs- can mold bug posts. Absolutely. But, but, but I don't know about the, this uh, thing that was discussed before about the uh, Republic uh, being like, uh, you know, fascism where uh, a corporation would be in charge. Because. <laughs> because, because, still. By the way, speaking of Duce, and, I know I'm not done no, yet. Man. I'm not, but look. Here we go. In a republic, people would still have, even though like it's a representational democracy, you could say like people would still have some leeway as far as getting their elected officials to, you know, lean on a certain thing more. Uh, as opposed to the corporations being the ones well, that ultimately guess, decided, there is still say, some power sharing there. I mean, I would say, you know, when it comes to, the, you know, when I talk about being, you know, talking about republicanism, it's it's not in the sense where it's even it re- even it even requires uh, something that like elected officials in the sense of like a democratic or even in like a kind of class based election you see in like the Roman Republic. Yeah. Um, yeah it's it's representative in the sense where um and there's a good book on this recently coming out or recently came out called byzantine republic by anthony caldellis which is about largely how the byzantine empire still thought of itself as the roman republic oh yes of course and and monarchy was not uh i mean monarchy even kind of i mean byzantine monarchy was even was far more elective you very it was very infrequently that it was just passed on to a to the hereditary biological successor well but this is the same is true for the holy roman empire it's it's official and elective monarchy correct elected by the prince by the prince by the kurfürst and the prince electors right the but the the form right so i mean so the form serves a certain purpose and so if 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 you want to frame res publica as a corporation it's a public corporation it's owned not by a family or a particular lineage um, or, or you know, arbitrarily passed on as a private thing, but owned by the SPQR, uh, the, the elders and people. The, yes, in the in the place. in the ult, in the ultimate sense, of course, like that you can have a public, you can have like, but this is not incompatible with the monarchical, the patrimonial theory as well. Like you can have no. both. Ultimately, there's a Wait, corporate Elizabeth... body subject. The fundamental. Yeah, I I wrote about uh, you know like. Uh, yeah. Sir Thomas Smith's uh, The Republica and Glorum, but like an Elizabethan historian. But was like, there how- a precursor to like por- corporations in the ancient world, even in the Roman Republic? Or is that like, yeah. I'm actually really, not so sure. I'm like actually as a business sure arrangement the- or as a pro like a temporary project? I think, isn't that where corporations come from? It was sort of like a corporation was set up to do a specific project and then it would dissolve. Or like no 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 corporations are perpetual by the that, that's the, that's the whole point of a corporation is that it's supposed to be this perpetual yeah, thing which even, even yes and it's always been the case from the beginning like a, the whole point mm. of a corporation is that it it has a permanent life cycle outside the individual members that's what's that's what's mm. that's why the crown will always exist even if there's no king taking place in the crown for example and in this, there were precursors of it in in the Roman, uh, in in the Roman Republic. You're saying there was sort like, of like, uh, not that the term "respublica" common well. Almost all monarchies, in fact, even the most like feudal ones, they still saw themselves as respublica, as common well. Like, uh, for example, the in particular, the Hungarian and Polish aristocracies were very rebellious 
and jealous, you know, like Poland had the rich pospolita. Uh, the uh, aristocratic veto. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the liberum veto, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, which which is where you get the expression like Polish Parliament because if even one person disagrees, nothing can get passed. But, you know, like total, but then, total mayhem. But then, like, uh, in fact, the modern... I, should point, I should point out though that uh, uh, the whole concept of majority rule is a, is a modern one because in in all pre-modern forms of government. Uh, it was consensus, every, yeah. Every, it was no, no, not consensus. Unanimous, unanimous consent, unanimity. There was no majority rule. Like either it had to be unanimous or it was not passed. Mm. The same, the same, the same was true for the estates. You know, and the thing about an estate, by the way, very important. It doesn't matter how many representatives there are in an estate; they only have one vote. Like it could be two hundred townsmen. But they're an estate, and they only have one vote as a corporation. No, it's it's not vote by head; it's vote by curia. And in fact, the curia dates back to the Roman Republic, as a matter of fact. Mm. Actually, the Roman Roman Kingdom, actually. But then, but, but in was... the Roman Republic, they had sort of different uh, uh, amounts that votes could count. So I don't remember yeah, exactly the, how it the, goes, but the, like the upper the class as... had more leeway than the yeah. Roman not class. everyone the, like not everyone could is, vote obviously. The, like that goes the same. <laughs> the same is true in the medieval estates. You had these like positions. They were called firilstime, where they were like individual persons, like for example the archbishop or the rector of a university, who had a vote independent of his estate and it could be multiplied. Like, you know, the archbishop's vote would count, for example, as like, for example, five people, for instance. Like even up to up to the 19th century in Prussia, this was still the case, or in Austria. You know, this lasted for a very long time, like even into modernity. So yeah, uh, you know, but like rep- represent- was- representation is a very complex subject. Like, you know, like our modern form of like parliamentary representation with like political parties is just total garbage system it's, it's, it's the worst it's the worst form of representation possible and you know oh it's our freedom it's our liberty but no you're well i mean that's the, the interesting thing is though the 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 this this kind of conception of liberal republicanism the idea of one one man one vote or one person right. one vote is um is then, then becomes also- highly Highly like problematic for yeah, yeah, like Republican, republic, republicanism and liberalism are not the same thing at all. They're actually very contradictory ideologies. I, I know, yeah. Well, so you, you, but they, they, they cross sect at different points, and yeah, you know, yeah. I think you could, you can distinguish them because of their, you know, you can distinguish in, in a given author. They usually overlap, but you can distinguish them by the vision they're casting in terms of what exactly they want a polity to look like. Yeah, um, liberalism has almost. It almost no concept of like civic virtue like civic virtue is entirely like republican right. like machiavelli's virtue so, so the, the funny thing is though is that you you a lot of the theorists at the turn of the century turn against um this this kind of they don't want to erode uh the actual effect of 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 you know vote by head but they don't like the results because they don't think it's ultimately beneficial for uh, the world order they want to create. They think it's too well, unstable, it's, it's too violent, it's too chaotic. And so you'll see a lot of these people, Some, you know, it's very easy to take this elitist gloss where you read someone like, uh, or I mean, Lippmann is sort of the, the typical one, but you'll even get not exactly neoliberals, but you'll get kind of just jaded 
ex-liberal aristocrats like uh hl mankin who talks about mm, you know yeah, how yeah. could you actually respect william jennings bryan you look at the people who vote for him what does a, a guy who thinks you know the moon's made out of cheese and he's a pig farmer why would you ever give him a vote yeah mankin's very much like anti-populism but yet is like a liberal still so he's yeah, like yeah. a weird american uh, no but this like was mixed. no but like most liberals in the 19th century were anti-populist like the french doctrinaires like francois yeah. guizot you know, like they were, they were simultaneously liberals and also enemies of democracy. And in fact, like, uh, you know, the Italian elite school of like Gaetano Mosca, who like the neo-reactionaries keep citing, those were all liberals. I mean, they, they were openly liberals. They, they hated democracy because the Democrats would take away their liberal rights. That's right, why many of the physiocrats yeah. were arch supporters yeah, yeah. of Louis Sixteenth. They, they were not well, not the neo reactionaries only... are largely liberals, they're just scorned liberals. They're, they're they don't want to admit it. They're, they're ex liberals. Is Moldbug a secret yeah. liberal? Of yes, course, like Moldbug's <laughs> legacy is from like Rothbard, like he says, it Yeah, himself. that's true. Yeah, no, is like liberalism on steroids. Almost apex, did you have a chance to speak before? I didn't see you uh speaking, so no, I have zero knowledge on scottish you know history and, and feudalism so i was just listening and learning um i wanted on. to ask i wanted to ask the professor if the, it was comp like scottish feudalism was complicated because they have such a big history of uh like tr tribal uh family clans like th that were almost in some ways ungovernable or if that's just like i don't know a kayfabe sort of myth uh like what oh, that I mean, had a role to play like they were it is right now afghanistan they were kind destroyed of, yeah. to, they were destroyed in the jacobite wars in the 18th century oh, they, that's they, right. lost, yeah. they, lo they lost mm. their hereditary jurisdiction so basically mm. but scots law you, you can read the uh, erskine's institutes of scotland like the interesting thing about scots law it's very feudal but it's also very roman and in fact my mm. first statement in this talk i tried to point out that actually feudalism the the legal aspect the the juridical aspects of feudal law almost all of them descend from roman law that's the interesting thing like right. you know like uh, we think of like uh, you know roman law it's this like a uh, uh, republican form of law based imperium. on imperium imper imperium mm -hmm. yeah and uh, auctoritas but really it was just as amenable to kind of uh, fracturing into private jurisdiction as well i mean i think and that's what makes there's a kind of parallel on, on for for in, in um, widely different historical contexts but you know the roman republic was ultimately able to function for as long as it did because instead of abolishing this basically clannish mentality which is you know that that's what the patricians were they were clans Right? Yes. You can kind of dress it up. They were just clans. The Roman families. Republic's basically a degenerate kingdom. I mean, all all of the <laughs> main, all of the, all of the main foundations of the so Roman Republic. The issue, the, 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 the issue isn't monarchy, but the twelve the tables. Is, okay, the twelve go ahead. tables. The twelve tables. Uh, the religious rights that were set by King Numa Pompilius, who was also my Twitter handle, by the way, uh, because like Numa Pomp, like every like Christian writer. In the Middle Ages, by the way, it was like a big fan of Numa Pompilius because, you know, precisely it was he who set the Roman rights. All of these foundations of the Roman Republic were all set during the kingdom. Like the, the Roman Republic was basically 
it's basically the Roman kingdom with its head cut off. That's 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 exactly what it and, was. And most the most powerful people were all come from these like ancestral tribal families in the Roman. Of course, world. right? The, but the, they were the the, 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 the the role of consular uh, elections and other forms of public office being kind of related to and overseen by the senatorial class, which made up mainly of the same patricians. Uh, it channeled these uh, essentially private familial ambitions into actually building the state so i mean Instead you know, just to say call the a republic yeah you know you call the republic just sheerly a degeneration doesn't explain its long-term success but it also explains why it collapses and so the parallel that's actually interesting is england's great success from the late 17th into the in the 18th century from the glorious revolution on and sort of the whig uh d- domination of politics was precisely the same thing it marshaled aristocratic wealth back into the state to actually expand and defend the state that England becomes this marvel among Europeans who wish to reform the sort of broken down societies in which they're dwelling or the sort of um, or it's, it's sort of mutant form in you know in France with the absolutism absolute bureaucratization uh, under Louis the 14th and his success no there was ne- there was never an absolute bureaucracy that's a myth like there's a great book by Nicholas Henschel called the myth of absolutism like even under Louis the 14th uh, like I said you still had like well, a whole yes. bunch of uh, yeah, yeah, officers uh, provinci- yeah, yeah the aristocracy no, was almost like a bureaucratic Pro- state no you you, you, like you still had the provincial estates which were convened in fact an interesting fact about uh, the estates in Louis the Fourteenth's France, like particularly in Burgundy and Brittany, they were convened a lot, and uh, the kings actually insisted that the estates be convened regularly, whereas the aristocracy were opposed. And the reason why is because, of course, every time you convene a state, you gotta give up taxes. There you go. So frequent convening of estates is not necessarily an aristocratic prerogative it can just as much be a royal one no so, so the point i'm making about louis the 14th absolutism was that it was still a his authority ultimately depended on a kind of personal ability to manipulate aristocrats and extend palace privileges to yeah, it's, pat- it's, patr- it's patrimonial forces. power yeah yeah, so I'm maybe maybe absolutist isn't isn't the proper term for it because I mean ultimately when you compare Louis the Fourteenth or his successor's ability to marshal funds for war or for state building or infrastructural development, it was horrible when you compare to Parliament's ability to raise funds through the Bank of England. And the reason it was you know remarkably different wasn't just because the Bank of England was a stable institution and Louis the Fourteenth you know had to depend on upon goodwill of creditors to actually raise this money. And they have to do all these like back channel, you know, dark alley deals. Controlled by also, the Rothschilds. <laughs> well, I mean, well, so, I mean, the Bank of England's success during the 18th century was because many of the same people who governed the bank or heavily invested in the bank or controlled the mechanisms of the bank were sitting members of parliament. That's right. Yeah, that's Or MPs that's right, in the yeah. commons or, you know, or they were members of the government in the, in the, um, you know, the king would appoint, um, which became heavily managed and, corrupt but effective under uh, Walpole but you know it actually had a public spiritedness now by the end of the 18th century uh, you know I think there's a kind of funny like one of the most important dates is the 1788-1789 where you have the the trial of Warren Hastings and it's precisely the point where England was constantly straddled between a parliamentary state and the royal corporations that basically did whatever they wanted and so the East India Company was sort of had become out of control 
as well, well here in Canada we, we had uh the, like the Hudson's Bay company was one of these like yeah the other crown corporations and, and a lot of these corporations did decently well and were basically able to operate independently but none of them gained as much wealth territory and power i mean east india company was basically a government yeah uh, and it ran them. large parts of india and the funny thing is you know just again this is the dark element drawing the modern parallels is you have someone like um eric prince who runs blackwater and it's <laughs> you know it's not called blackwater anymore but X, in an interview, X-E something academy like that. academy that's academy name. yeah but he he wants he actually said in an interview like you know he's like okay they made mistakes but actually east india company is the way to go right you know privatize your militaries have corporations do these things run trade routes that's far better than than any government Blackwater Hurricane Katrina, do not research. Blackwater Hurricane Katrina, do not research. But you know the point. The point in this is that you you see the England's and Rome degenerate into basically this private dominions, and Rome doesn't actually recover from the late Republican collapse, really until Diocletian and Constantine, where the the imperial throne becomes sort of a bureaucratic palace or organized to actually public development. Instead, it was just warlords, basically, or private families being able to make deals in this, you know, in the patrimonial so, sense. So but, you're saying um, by the by the end of the Republic, it was more akin to what we, ironically enough, what we're seeing nowadays, which is like the like corporate barons and families that have a lot immense wealth and power, yeah, are yeah, sort of like ruling because, the roost. Uh, and the Senate know, was to totally be, degenerated oh, yeah. at that point, right? Like. Or, well, so, I mean, the thing is, the thing is, um, you know, yeah, that's that's precisely what takes place in the late Republic and in late England. And the state effectively becomes a private um, battering ram. And even though, right, I mean, you know, all these liberals are all hedging in the 19th century saying, well, you know, we want the withering of the state. We want it decayed. But then when Argentina tries to close its doors to British trade, no, Palmerston sends you. the fleet. Yeah. yeah, they blow it open. Yeah. Right? They get they pay Brazil to invade Argentina. Yeah, uh, that's right. Gladstone yeah. occupies Egypt and he can't like decide what to do. He doesn't want to leave. Uh, I mean, you know, it, it becomes, um, you know, because it, it's about saving the market. And that's or what the United Fruit Company would be another. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, well, precisely. Not, not... So as much as this becomes the English model, uh, you know, in the United States, that becomes the American model ultimately. Um, and so in, then, by becoming so, English. So then, not like just, Apex. Uh, oh, sorry. The, not just promoting the market, but these states also became obsessed with promoting national self determination under Canning and then. Uh, and then right. America is Lord, Lord, Lord Palmerston, uh, yeah. It's about, it's about creating or it's about uprooting legitimacy. Where exactly. there's a stable state, or did, it's about did, was it Palmerston that had false legitimacy through these these totally worthless ethnic enclave ethno states? Yeah, uh, you know. So I think there needs to be a distinction because a nation state, even though you know etymologically they're the same terms, uh, but nation states tended to refer to larger fictive identities than these like deeply biologized, biologized right. ethno states yes. that become yes. more like. Well, the, the, this the is the basis of Anderson's like thesis in imagined communities with print capital, right? I think that was yeah, like, but he like, thinks this is like this is like oh, if we just haha, you know, this is what like a lot of these academics are ultimately just neoliberal shills. It's like haha, you know, it's what's all fake. So we can just sort of break down into this incredibly atomized individual components, which is basically what Foucault does, but it's on steroids, right? Like you should write histories of sexuality, but 
Why do we assume there's a person? Why do we assume there's a self? Is it is kind the, of like yeah, it's center. the anti-humanism of Foucault. Why don't you write a history exactly. of because power, power creates the yeah power <laughs> power create the cosmic vagina. Power creates the subject um, through power knowledge, like through the the regimes of truth and the apparatuses of God. Yeah, but I fuck know, with it's, Google it's like, for hours. Sorry, it's, it's it's no, it's crazy because it's in it, you know it ultimately. But he's kind of he's right though. I mean, I I I don't know. I he's kind of. The scary well, part is he's kind of. Right I, I do think way. he's right up to a point, but it denies that the man's ability to think, or even you know, to, to yeah, put on a theological well, key, right? That's true. God yeah. speaks, and the world comes to be, right? Man but, but, speaks but see, in the, our limited capacity. We make reality through our through words. We describe reality. But, but then notice, it. yeah. But then, but then, but then, Cal, notice the sort of the half reversal in the later period of Foucault when you talk about the logos ray maybe you could like make some weird connection here because then Foucault recapitulates to the Greeks to Parisia to the creation of art and now you could say that through the word the logos becomes a sense of stability within the subject but that's My, getting off yeah. the fucking point what well, i really no, I, I think there's a, there's a point there i mean and i'm not i'm not an expert on foucault and i've read very little right. primary so it's actually i just read the first volume of history of sexuality because this drunk dude at a bar like bought me a drink when i was he thought he liked my conversation with someone else and then he made i felt bad so I was well like, if he's oh, recommending foucault it. he's coming on to you obviously oh, I, yeah I, right I, no. I, have a, <laughs> I have a great story about that actually but like, um a, but oh go, go ahead I was at a cafe once, uh, like it was like I think like a couple of years ago. This like neighborhood cafe, and at some point, this like much older gentleman, like basically old enough to be my grandfather, we started talking about like you know like uh, history, politics, somewhere I don't remember how. And at one point, he said to me, "If you want to understand how the world works, you ought to read this book by Jack London. It's called." might is right and my yeah like the I rock thought you the were rock, gonna say uh white fang you know, no like the book by ragnar redbeard if you know if you know about it like might is right you know like this uh, basically manifesto of like uh anti-christian social darwinism which is misattributed to jack london it was actually written by some australian guy and i, I was surprised like how, how like first of all how the hell did he even know about this and like like a communist in a former like uh, <laughs> eastern bloc state like my god and, and sapiens very... is like the reddit version of that book yeah. i was so... like man, man this is some hardcore stuff man go ahead no i feel like i'm talking to bap whenever i'm hearing you speak carl's but i don't know why uh... <laughs> no but it's still it's still a little bit weird to me like yes there is my it is right as far as that's always going to be the backup we're always going to have that like we're always going to have violence that's a part of human nature but the question still is like okay what is the system that you guys in particular would be in favor of but, no, that but, would but, be but... able to preserve you know some dignity at least that's let's a good use question the word dignity here but before for before most we get people. Before we get to that, what I wanted to ask, one would be, uh, Apex, you could shed light on this, about the, what you're saying, it really does go to show that maybe neo-reaction kind of is liberal at its core in, in terms of like the corporatocracy is now something that it becomes even more autonomous. You and, guys and, need to get Moldbug on here someday. I know, we sh we, we really will, should. We I, mean, I think we gotta get Moba, we gotta get Giorgiani, we gotta get Giorgiani versus but, but Alexander also, Bard. But but also like the like you were saying, Cal, about these the sort of the way in which 
the modern state had to prop up like these these like ethnic enclaves in order to like fulfill certain ends like was not lord palmerston for example was he not instrumental in creating that certain state in the middle east or was that like right i mean this is the problem yeah. is that like you you start talking like this and you attract people on both sides who like think either that's you're an anti-semite and that's a yeah good thing you're not it has nothing yeah. to do with it it has to do with trying to get access and rip apart the ottoman empire and, and, so and to be fair the americans did this in south america all the time right yeah, well, actually I mean, for yeah. most of the 19th century england actually accommodated the ottoman empire because of the rivalry with russia well, I, so mm. I think it, it, it's a it's a dual it's a dual role. Yeah. They wanted to they were yeah, carving yeah. it up, but they didn't want it. You know, it's it was it was controlled collapse. You don't want to just blow it up because that will give Russia access easily because they're in uh, a the, point in a point yeah. that was overlooked. Maybe you can you two explain just for people who don't know the the differences between or the incompatibility between republicanism and liberalism or. Democrat. Oh, that's that's Kels Forte. Give him the words. Well, I mean, I think anyone who's interested should just read the Machiavellian moment by uh, Pocock. And uh, in, in, that's a great under, book. Yeah, he's come under a, a lot book. of fire in, in this paradigm because, they, oh, look, every liberal, every Republican has, you know, common, in, you know, common kind of you know, interest, right? There are plenty of Republicans who have a liberal ethos, right, where they want one person, one vote. And there right. are Republicans uh, or there are liberals who desire a, a a more you know Republican form of government where you have elected representatives, but it really you, you can really demarcate a major a major difference in what they think you know what they think society is. And Republicans will emphasize civil virtue because the the state the, you know society the state is representative of society and it operates as a public corporation to benefit right. the people in a given territorial space. Um, and then, you know, this, this can be sort of expanded to the point where it's, you know, connection or loyalty to this public corporation, even if you live, leave that space where it's liberalism and liberalism in contrast wants to emphasize the individual's freedom within uh, a territory. Yeah. Within a territory with their freedom from, with, with, uh, from restraints to pursue anything in particular but this is grounded not just by anarchy, because otherwise that would be psychotic. You end up with like Hobbes' state of nature in some ways. Um, and Hobbes is in, in a lot of ways is effectively a liberal. But rather than appealing to history, you have to appeal to the state of nature. Um, that is in large part of fiction. Yes. Yeah, it is in a lot. I mean, yeah, you know, Agamemnon Sorry, I'm like my neo reactionary influences now coming. No, it's, up, it's, so. it's, oh, the, the state of nature is actually not a creation of the Enlightenment, it's actually a creation of classical international law, like Hugo mm -hmm. Grotius, Samuel von yes. Puffendorf. It's developed in a, in a direction to um, basically basically just you know there are different myths right uh Locke gives one that's much more harmonious than Hobbes's version but it's trying so to even more common, so. it's trying to give you a common ground underneath a why a state exists and, and then provi provide basically an effective universal basis for interaction among these states um right mm -hmm. and and but ultimately the thing that becomes the norming norm within nature the sort of mechanism by which nature uh, you know, has like a self-consciousness through human beings, which are sort of like nature staring back at itself, is in the marketplace. And so therefore, liberal society and about the idea of what's, you know, 
you want freedom to basically do anything, but it becomes, it develops in the sense where you, you're not free to do anything. You're free to participate in this marketplace. And there's an optimism that if everyone's allowed to trade um, without trying to destroy the marketplace, then the best things will come to light. And then Kant's uh, perpetual peace thesis is like, yeah, it's uh, Bernard, from that. who was it? Uh, who was it? Who said that uh, private vice is public virtue. Uh, this was like well, a, when you a say Mandeville. participate when you say Man, participate yeah, exactly. uh when you say participate in the uh marketplace if for example we have somebody who does not want to live with their horrible family and wants to go out into the city and become a doctor or something like oh liberals be... praise that they, they yeah they, they, no, they no, think well, that's that the be... dream <laughs> but again if that family is indeed horrible and indeed, they would be able to find a better life for themselves and find somebody to settle down within the city when they do become a doctor. Like, I don't see that as a negative, as opposed well, so that's, to, let's that's say, the, being uh, stuck with somebody and not having a choice. But right. again, this is... Right. The, I mean, the, like, point, the point isn't so much that, you know, because the way you describe it, it's almost like you have the cabin in the woods and you have the city somewhere... There's no, you're, there, it's almost anarchic in the way you're describing it. There's no authority. There's no public thing that everyone belongs to. So, you know, th even this is funny, like Republican Rome had this very feudal element where they carved out this idea of like pater potestas that, you know, you're allowed to do whatever you want as a father, as, a, as the head of your household to your children, your slaves, your wife, to your property. Of course, most people would shame you and shun you if you were a psycho and you just decide to kill your kids because they like spilled milk or something. But that was your legal right. And, yeah, but, you know, actually, not, uh, but how do we know most people would shame you? Because we assume that's that that's not really. I mean, that's a historical like fact. Like, like a blood, it's a blood field, but I wouldn't really put that in feudalism. Well, well so. hold on. Let, let's actually break it's, this down a little bit. So you're talking about people you're talking about people who would shame people for doing something bad. I mean, sure, you could say that in the higher classes where people are going to be a lot more aware of what's going on, that's going to be way more common. But then yeah. when we go down to, you know, the more servile classes, and again, going back to Russia and what the Russian serfs did to each other, not just what the nobility did to them, that is an example of, you know, very bare acceptance of having the most... Uh, inhuman or you know like i mentioned where dignity i think dignity is an important word here having the most indignant things be done to people you know in the privacy of one's uh home or family with all the other families of the slower class not really giving a shit because they may be doing the same things too like that's something that i would seek to avoid and i don't know if this yeah. is something that's been addressed as much when looking back at these systems no and i, I think that's that's that concern is what derived or what drives some of the liberal uh interests among some republicans in the 18th and 19th century uh, but you know the what makes them republicans more fundamentally than being liberals is that you're appealing to the commons is in, in that it has the authority through its representative in the state whether the representative is a monarch uh, an aristocratic council or a democratically representative body or even a you know democratic assembly um, but that ultimately can intervene into these kind of horrible situations where, you know, parents don't have absolute rights over their children. They can't do whatever they want. Um, but it's, it's refers, I mean, and again, you know, in like medieval feudal societies, there were appeals that you could make to certain bodies that would give you certain rights, but these were private corporations effectively and not necessarily a public corporation, which is what we call the state. It's still difficult though, to say that, uh, 
if we cross the bridge to this uh, current reality where this uh, you know these companies or let's say with child protective services they would have more of a say if somebody ends up uh, you know complaining that something bad is happening to the kids or in Canada like Geo I don't know if this already happened or not but uh, this whole thing about uh, misgendering or uh, you know not wanting the child to go through these uh, particular mm -hmm. surgeries mm -hmm. would result in the child being taken away from you is that right is that what's yes happening yes now? in Ontario yes so yeah I mean these are pretty big examples and again like that is something that I would heavily uh, you know come down on but at but the no, same but time it's it about keeping a balance that's what I'm trying to get no here. But, like, but again this is like again this is like again the root of the the Whig liberal attitude of like we have to save these people from themselves because they're squalid and poor and they're backwards. You know what I mean? Like that's the, hmm, that's always I, going to I, be I, I think it's nuanced. Them. I don't think it's something that you could say just because the people we don't happen to like the attitude of, because again, I hate this snot nosed attitude of the blue empire or whatever you want to call it when it comes to the way that they react to uh, the modern condition. But at the same time, like, Maybe they also had kind of a point when it comes to certain historical realities that a lot of these people were living under that also, let's say, created a situation where my great-great-grandma was forced to marry this guy who was, like, 40-something years old, and, like, I believe he hit her. I'm not exactly sure, like, what happened in between them, but, you know, it was a pretty precarious situation. She was, like, a saint, you know, and uh, I think she was way more of a saint than he was. So, again, like, I know it's, like, I don't want to be one of these people who puts in front of uh, you a child and says, think of the children and think of the poor children like no but let's actually figure out like what are the great big repercussions of having these much more let's say base and red pill civilizations that existed in the past that uh you know right now it's like how much of this is well, a green, you ask, grass is green on the other side kind well, of you thing. ask people what their ideal society would look like which is True. kind of like asking uh i don't know i feel like asking people it's a very interesting question but it's kind of like asking uh What's your ideal woman that you're looking for? You know well, what sure. I mean? Like, okay. Ideal is like... bad. You're right. <laughs> ideal is a bad word. Instead of saying ideal, I would say what what great reforms would you say need to be undertaken in order to make the society we're going to live in the future, you know, much more, let's say, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's, it's even a difficult word to use here, but basically a society where you can't really say outright, like, look, this person is being prevented from doing something that's not going to hurt other people. And sure, maybe they're going to make some mistakes along the way, but still, like, it's, it's a kind of society where there's a balance between preserving something that keeps this whole fucking ship going and at the same time, you know, well, and having But a, it's also know, like pleasure. the basis from which you derive legitimate authority. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's like at the end of the day, that's like the most crew, not the most obviously, but one of the crucial sort of uh, linchpins of like, or rather debates within like right wing politics, which is what is the basis of legitimacy from which you drive like a future, like based in red pilled state? Like, is it race? Is it religion? Is it, you know what I mean? Like that's. So, that's so wait, worth can I, oh, uh, can I interject real quick on a Go few things? It. All right. Yeah, so ahead, yeah. first, I actually think that asking people what their ideals is useful in a roundabout way, because what you're trying to get at, of course, is really the question of what makes life worth living, you know? Um, and so a lot of times that when they their picture of the ideal can effectively illuminate what they feel makes life worth living. Um, 
on the second point, um, Lev, the the harm principle. Um, I'm a fairly serious opponent of it. I don't think it holds up to criticism. What is the harm principle? I, the idea that so long as what you do does not harm others, that it's okay. Put yeah, because formally, that's, that's clearly formally it was John bullshit. Stuart Mill's. It was John Stuart Mill's principle in On Liberty, which was effectively that the state has no right to step in unless you can make a clear case that this action has harmed some other person. Um, now, the problem, and I've, I've written on this, is that you can basically demonstrate that effectively any action harms someone, and so therefore the, the harm principle just kind of collapses. Now, what I think that you're getting at, which is you know, correct, is that you need to have a, a system in which the dynamics of power throughout society is such that individuals are not being lorded over by this extremely powerful entity that they have some ability to live their life without they're not at the mercy of someone else yeah um yeah so so i i think but, that that's not, but not I, just, I do think not that's just at the mercy of someone else i don't know if let's say somebody who wants to go out to the city and get a job as a doctor and they're not allowed to do that based on you know their race or religion or whatever like that that to me i don't know where you would put that category into but that is something that i would be against because it seems to also create a lot of this tension over time that tends to explode in other ways you know it just doesn't seem like something that would lead that, to a dark yeah, yeah. That, that desire so... the desire to want to be a doctor you know where does that come from if you live in a society where careers tended to be linked to certain families your expectation of wanting to be a doctor wouldn't exist now we live in a society where you know it's sufficiently meritocratic that you think anyone can, who wants to be a doctor can be a doctor and you know if there's a need for it and then they can go and do it but i think that's why right a lot of the people who are fantasists on twitter who, who talk about the race red red pilled and based uh, society right you know it's like how would you wrench people back into like a pre-vatican to roman catholic like uh you know integralist state you know some people or maybe a post-vatican to integralist state because most people aren't going to want to do that and so i think what republicanism offered at least especially in someone like Machiavelli who is recovering, you know, by, by kind of giving commentary on these Roman histories is by grounding the state's existence in history. It's not to an abstract idea. It's, it's through the very passage of time. And so the values that people have or the way we relate to each other, you can't really just step outside of the bounds of our received wisdom and tradition, even if there you is can no critique return. it from within it. Yeah, you can't go, you can't turn the clock back. And the people who actually do, and this is what ties into the larger point, um, you're just, not only are you just LARPing, but, you know, com communitarianism ends up just sort of being another market share on the marketplace, right? Oh, do you want to go live in like medieval times? Well, we got a place for you. Oh, you want to live in a techno punk and, and cap like, uh, and Rand's <clears throat> fiction, we got a place for you. You know, there's like uh, the mm. fantasies end up allowing well, you yeah, and, to and, escape. And, and theoretically, the patchwork point... would make this, according to Moldbug, 10 times easier because then it's like if you want your cyberpunk dystopian, like, uh, or Y2K aesthetic, uh, fantasy nostalgia, millennial nostalgia land, as opposed to like yeah, medieval man, renaissance. That's the whole point. The, the whole reason why. why... 
Mm -hmm. Sorry. The entire idea behind NRX is basically that we should literally run the government like a business, which is just total nonsense. But, but more than that, more than that is exit is just voice. You know, it's just liberalism. Like exit yeah, or voice is would you prefer your liberalism grape or cherry to steal the title of a piece by Zippy Catholic. May he rest in peace. Yeah, you but know, at the like, same time, what option? What oh, I forgot. I forgot about Zippy Man. Oh, yeah, used to be Dude, great. Yeah. rest R. in R. peace. A, real a true legend. Well, real, yeah. real, uh, real quick, by the way, to the comment that Pylos was making uh, a bit earlier here. There were uh, so many doctors that we knew back in the USSR who were uh, Jewish doctors who were penniless. They weren't making any money at all on the uh, work that they did, yet they still went out every day and uh, treated people. And as far as, like, why the fuck did they do it? Like, I think that there is something within human nature, you know, as corny as it sounds, you know, that does have this aspect of wanting to treat people and uh, get people to a better, a, bit, a better quality, a better state of consciousness. And I think because of that, uh, there's always going to be people who want to try to make the world better. Some of them may not really know what better better is some of them may think that they're doing the right thing and then they're doing the wrong thing but uh still i don't think that the end of this should be this uh you know this uh whole uh idea of uh, might makes right and that's it because like i said before we're always gonna have that in the back we're always gonna have violence we're always gonna have killing that's always there that's not gonna go away but on top of that is there a way to balance out like maybe with patchwork i don't know but with something that yes. would enable people well this to do... no patchwork would not work at all it's the same reason why the free market doesn't really exist it's you get accumulation and you get you know consolidation and then different groups have different amounts of market power and you know then you're like well why isn't the free market working it's well well it doesn't exist dumbass um patchwork is a stupid idea so um, you agree we need uh neo-absolutism right now <laughs> I, i'm only uh, half being ironic i'm only half being dude, those are my hereditary anthropology side of that was too much for me like it just just too many words i didn't know what half of them meant um but no, but so going Lev, going off what, what you're discussing, and I, I think this is really important, and it's why I, I, I make the distinction between material power and formal power. And so like material power is like, you know, I have a gun and you don't, you know, like that's material power. But formal power is like, I recognize that you have the right to make a decision. It's like authority. And so you know, you can you can actually look at like fair what looks like contradictory movements are not actually that contradictory. Like you can have a situation where you're distributing material power to an extent while centralizing formal power. Um, in fact, you know, and the idea that this isn't realistic or I mean, quite the or the opposite where you're or centralizing opposite, informal you know, power. And, you know, yeah, I mean, if you look at if you look at today's society, you're kind of, you know, I know a lot of people are like, oh, everything's a branch of the U.S. government. I actually think it's no, different. It's that we're seeing bullshit. we're seeing a centralization of material power, but formal power is diffusing through a wide number of networks. Wait, so let's break it down. What, what's a centralization of material power? How that would be you... that would be like if the United States government had a five million strong standing army, no one was allowed any and we had UK level gun laws. Like there's no guns, there's no knives, there's nothing. Um, there's a knife license. Yeah. License. <laughs> you got a license. I, I, I like by the way, there, mate. <laughs> Alex Alex cracked a cracked a smile. But he the... did a, he did a chuckle when I said license. 
but this is mate. but this is why I think the recent article by Moldbug about the tech company, the social media companies, is fucking like I just I oh, hate to say he really took an L, took a fucking oh, yeah, L. It was, it was terrible. It was terrible. 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 I mean, um, I know I I know I'm criticizing the gut, and here's the thing. Okay, I do bro, like Moldbug. Mold I'll like, I, go after him. Let's do it. Yeah, no, I I do I do appreciate. Listen, I hate to say it, but Moldbug brought us all here in, in some ways. Yeah, I have, I have to admit. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I I hate yeah. to admit it, but yeah. Who's Moldbug? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody uh, subscribe, subscribe, uh, subscribe, to the show and go to Patreon.com. Go to patreon.com slash break the rules. I don't know. I, I, I gotta I gotta stress this so much. I, we are I growing, think we, we gotta get more patrons. Apparently Moldbug was a psyop according to some guy that was responding to you, Carl's bad of he's uh, a glow well, in the dark was, or something. Was, uh... To be honest, I'm convinced, honestly. <laughs> he's a glow in the dark. Wait, I wonder <laughs> if there were experiments made before where you can like get a bug and make the bug glow in the dark like give it some kind of a uh, liquid uh, bioluminescence yeah bioluminescent no, insects I, i'm pretty sure his i'm pretty sure his name is a pun on gold bug because you know he's oh yeah, there yeah. You go. he's an advocate <laughs> of the gold standard yeah he's he's all about austrian economics i mean that's from there and, and so carl's bad you, you disagree with the gold standard if i recall no no, no i am i am a hundred percent pro gold standard actually. oh okay it, well, the gold, I, I, the gold standard kind of misses the point, you know, like even historically, like, like the way that you got around it as a state was you were just like, oh, it's still on gold, but like each dollar is now worth a different amount of gold. It's like no, it's you, still you, the standard. You, like, you, you, you suspend convertibility. That's, that's how you the, the, the problem. You would destroy the banks is, if so, that so this we is went back to it. One of the, one of the few, uh, the few times that my economics degree was worth it. Um, is one of the very I can probably count them on one hand, but the inflation is not necessarily a a a, a function of of it fiat money or gold standard or whatever. It's that the one dollar or one unit of currency needs to equal roughly the same underlying economic value over time. So like it's a it's a basket, if more factories it's a are getting built commodities yeah, yeah but, but yeah if more factories are getting built you know you you want there to be uh, an expanded money supply and vice versa but but then let's go back to the main uh, yeah, sorry. topic uh, got off track uh, but no but like no but this relates though about money in a feudal system back in the day what what was it there there obviously wasn't like a quote unquote, like free market, sophisticated logic of like the impersonal hand of the free market. But there was, in a sense, uh, a lot of power was predicated upon currency, was it not? Or was it? Well, it's who controls the currency. So actually an interesting way of approaching this, you know, as, 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 um, as an alternative is that the medieval Byzantine state at different periods, you can see it go up, you know, it's a power go up and down in mm. reference to how well it can kind of control the currency and regulate the, the various aristocratic families that dwell throughout Asia Minor uh, and mm. elsewhere. Mm. Um, and as the state collapses, you know, the, when it is able to return to some level of strength in different periods of time, um, it's because it gets, it reasserts control over its coinage. And whether that's the seal, you know, it recoins, um, it creates a new seal, um, 
And it can do that by basically debasing the currency. It's, it stops being pure gold. It starts becoming pieces of silver. But it's a, basically an attempt to try to wrest control back from uh, various families who had sort of hoarded gold. Um, and and, and during the crusade, how would that work, they though? Well hoarded, hoarded uh, or they had to use their funds, like these families, in order to like pursue pilgrimages to crusades in Jerusalem. But and it's so a forth. trick, though. It's a trick. Like if you're if you're shortening gold like that, if you're uh, putting uh, you know minerals inside of it that aren't worth a damn, then eventually people are going to get smart to that. And well, uh, it's because the value yeah. of the currencies in the seal, the use of precious metals, was to prevent counterfeiting. Uh, you know, actually, I think, the, again, like, I, I can't, like, push him enough, but Michael Hudson is one of the greatest economists alive, and I hope he lives, he's, like, in his 90s now. He was actually Trotsky's godson, if you, if you know, give you a historical, like, framework. Uh, um, that's how old he is. But, you know, he's done research on the antiquity of, of these economies, and he rejects, the, like, the old libertarian, liberal idea that, like, trade originated from barter. And it's actually trade originates from these palace economies that developed that could create, you know, these like palace sanctioned market spaces. And the way you interacted in those marketplaces wasn't by just bringing stuff, but by using the coins that the uh, the the palace would create. And so, the you know, again, you know, the technology adjusts to sort of try to keep up with the ability of creative individuals to try to cheat and, you know, do, you know, get ahead. But, you know, you use certain materials that are hard to find so that you don't end up accidentally flooding the market with too much currency. And then you also use complicated seals so that, you know, people can't just cheat and fake it. Um, you know, that's that was the main problem with paper money when that was being introduced. Yeah. Uh, you could just yeah. like scam all the time. You know, like America was founded as like a bunch of scammers who like flooded the market with paper. Um, and then like the attempt to try to control that, um, you know, motivated some people to basically become gold bugs um and that's but, how they crushed the south as well right because of paper currency was that right motivated? because yeah because yeah. they could they didn't it was basically carving out a level of independence from london um and being able to issue greenbacks mm. um and then you know that motivated uh, a huge wing of of uh, american populism to reinstate greenbacks because they were taken away i mean to be fair like uh there's the so the thing is that I, I used to read a lot of economics many years ago, but ever since my interest shifted into like, uh, you know, legitimism, I'm very left behind. Like I'm going to have to reread a whole bunch of stuff. But regarding the Confederacy, there's a there's an effect, a macroeconomic effect, I think, called the Prebysh-Singer effect, where basically economies that specialize in, that they're like very specialized in like a single or like a small number of agricultural commodities of primary like commodities tobacco yeah. they they always inevitably face deteriorating terms of trade because they can't reap increasing returns to scale from industrial production oh that's so like that's the, the story the, of canada right there uh, that's the story the, of canada right there the confederates America. the confederates <laughs> would have been screwed anyway and actually from what i recall there were a lot of like Confederate nationalists in like the 1850s and 1860s who fully intended on industrializing. Like they weren't all just like reactionary agrarians. Not 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 like the New South was not 
purely a product of right. construction. You, you, you can definitely a, tell the power balance because those people were constantly pushed around and cold shouldered by the the plantation owners that well, instantiated well, which, the themselves was like an aristocracy yeah, within. Yeah, America. but that was mostly that was mostly because of the whole like uh, thing about regional representation in Congress, like the tariff issue, whatnot. Like that, there was all sorts of like intersecting issues. I mean, I, I, those those issues become weapons to address the more fundamental economic material concerns. So that's how you can, you can chart John Calhoun's uh, career by basically following what's good for cotton at a given epoch. Oh yeah, like the whole era. the whole like theory of like I think what was it concurrent majority? Like yeah, it's it's basically. Uh, well, so it's you know, like, listen, yeah. listen, you guys are just racist. You don't realize that that the Civil War was fought over slavery and nothing else. Okay, I mean, you guys yeah, are what? racist. I mean, that's the, that's the <laughs> no. thing. That's the crazy thing is that um, <laughs> one of the most the, the, in the most insightful people. He's a Jacksonian Democrat from Ohio. He's Senator. Uh, I think his name is Thomas Morris. And he gets up in Congress. He ends up losing re-election because the Democrats pull support from him. But he denounces the the financiers in the North, the money power he calls it, and he de denounces the plantation owners in the South, the slave the slave power, and that they were mm. working together, right? And you know, more modern historians have tied this together. Like, oh, actually, the agrarians in the South, right? They role play wanting to be chevaliers of these of noble aristocrats with their black serfs. But, in, you know, in some ways, there, it wasn't exactly role play because, you know, they did want this sort of fragmented sense of power where they have their own dominions and they can do whatever they want. And the state tries to basically protect them, uplift it. And then they kind of they have this sort of relationship with, with their state governments. There, the there were that people was... in the South that wanted like nor like northern like moneyed power. Right. I mean, these people, they're all, they're them, all yeah. you know, you, you, you read like, you know, because there's sometimes cultural conflict, which reveals this. And they complain about these stupid Yankees who move down, make a bunch of money. And then they move back to New York or Philadelphia or Boston. And then they just, you know, get in the mer merchant business. The carpet bagger. Yeah. Right. I mean, so well, no, like, free, uh, uh, carpet bagging, because the idea was that this was just this huge money. And they're like, oh, you can't just do that. You know, it's like the JP Morgan hated day traders. He hated stock markets. He just wanted this like very professional loan. You know, you just sort of have this gentleman's agreement, but you know, it's just like, they're doing it at a rate. They're, they're, they're not respecting the sign of the, the decorum about it, but it's effectively the same thing. And you know, so you see these slave owners, they have this really sophisticated notion of political economy of agricultural technology of financial capitalism and that's why you like the alliance between new york city and wall street and the plantation owners in the south is so strong i mean it's an incredibly complicated system it's insane the slaves were basically mobile pieces of property and oh, like property you can you can take mortgages out on them you can yeah, yeah. Uh, you can get you know you you can get a lien on your slave. You can you know you know slave. what's it's, funny. It's you know what's funny, Cal. And you you being someone who is knowledgeable about this as well, but a lot of postmodern literature in um, postcolonial studies, like necropolitics, would be a good example. A lot of that, if you were to like divorce it of like the woke bullshit, you could say that the modern subject in the current managerial state is similar to like the slave in terms of like the state can take a uh, loan, like corporate power can basically turn you into a commodity and take well, loans out on you. And like, much, much more so. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, I, I was actually going to talk about the, uh, besides the plantation Junkers and the uh, Philo industrialists, there was a very interesting, uh, 
third position, like there was the Southern sociologists like Henry Hughes, who advocated this system called warrantism. And he basically, his plan was to progressively turn plantation slavery almost into a kind of social democracy by like, uh, you know, almost like he was going to organize the slaves into a kind of guild union structure and give them rights. Where, like, that where, was a very... was he, where was he from? Uh, let me, he was born in Mississippi. I'm looking at this right now. Because I wonder if he represents For, the cops or, or uh, you know, more northern slave. His economists. parents were originally from uh, Kentucky. Okay, he graduated so, uh, o- Oakland College, 1847. Yeah, I studied law in yeah in New Orleans, and that uh, he was Influenced very influenced by, by uh, August Francis Bacon, August Combe, Thomas Carlyle, mm. Jeremy, Jeremy yeah. Bentham Mill, like yeah, like basically. Ooh, Carlyle. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, because you know you have different visions of what slavery is effectively supposed to do, and for some people who didn't, you know, they didn't have a ton of influence, but had some influence in the in the Confederacy. You know, they, they wanted to basically turn, you know, the, the Confederacy into like an, an independent country that didn't depend you know, totally on Britain. I mean, they, they don't think they ever would think that they could ever do without British capital and developing cotton. But that's why they wanted to industrialize. And so Richmond becomes this huge hub. And, you know, it, it gets weird because, yeah, they start they want to basically treat slaves as alienable forms of labor that you can like you pay this fact. The factory pays you money to rent your tools, basically. Holy uh, shit! Wow. And, 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 and like, again, going, really but the off, modern but... corporatized subject is almost like that. And some hold on, Gio. Like, no, 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 no. I got a bone no, to pick no. with you there because again, no, if we're talking bullshit. about the modern corporatized <laughs> subject, you're not gonna have somebody coming out like your boss coming out and just slapping the fuck out of you. Or no, you know, no, I'm saying like, you know, like uh, there physical, was a, physical, there physical was a violence book. is not here. Right. I mean, it, will this, be, it will be. Yeah, it will be. I mean, yeah, be. I think we have these protections that prevent this. But you think, like, when you read those articles about Amazon employees, like, the people, yeah, they can't go to piss breaks. Um, yeah. There was a, there was one place that they they were basically worked not to death, but it was like 105 degrees in the factory, and they just rather than like buy air conditioning or lower the rate of, of work, they just had ambulances on standby. So when people are collapsing, they just get put on a stretcher. And and, th- and, then- and Lev, this isn't me saying, this is critical theorists saying, this is fucking Octavia Butler saying this shit. This is this is Mbepe saying this. This isn't just me. I'm, <laughs> I know you could say it's a hyperbole, and, and it probably is. But, I mean, the fucking suicide nets in China, I mean, come on, like that's... Well, okay, yeah, if we're talking about China, we can talk about China. Jobs. And yes, Amazon, that's that that also but, sucks. Well, but another again, th- now that we've yeah. shredded the neo-reactionaries, um, let's go after uh the other side of the political right. Let's go after the Wignats, the oh, and, the be, and before, nationalists. We do, before we I mean, do that, I also boring. have Yeah, I know, but, yeah, but Carl's bad, you had a great back in the day that the Lothrop Stoddard article. I, I always remember that one where you argue that a lot of like contemporary like white right wing like white nationalist thought was really like it came from like this particular moment within american liberalism that stoddard like embodied which is kind of ironic but like i don't know it's just uh i i feel like that that's sort of like a forgotten history where to the mainstream you're like an evil right-wing monster but yet at the same time within like these spheres it's like um 
I don't know. It's really crazy about how the way the these politics are now becoming more I'm, like. I'm just thinking about Eric Stryker or whatever his name is doing. A oh yeah, jazz. the way he's critiquing jazz. Yeah. Um, I know. I'm always no, but that. like even even like even people like Eric Stryker like understand this. You know what I mean? I feel that a lot of um. The the thing is okay. The alt right is dead, but at the same time that sort of uh, mentality is still with us in terms of like thinking about uh, like, what does it mean to have race and politics? Like, what does it mean to um, express like overt concern with one's own like tribe or race or whatnot? Like, I think a lot of that stuff is still there. And like, like I've always said, like, I don't like, um, I'm not a way nationalist because I think it's evil or wrong. I just, I don't know where like, as an Italian, where that really fits. You were black in like uh, 1900. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. a black nationalist. I mean, I'm a black nationalist, a... exactly. As an Italian, I'm a black nationalist. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, well, the fact of the matter uh, is, I mean, America today is a essentially it's a it's a it's a it's a racial society that yes, uh, yeah, benefits minority true. groups at the expense of historic European lineages. So, like. Being a white nationalist is a very natural reaction because essentially exactly. it is a natural reaction to you know, because uh, because well, first of all, well, the thing about race is that it has multiple factors. Like you know, like uh, traditionally in like uh, the medievals, they differentiated between three kinds of uh, ethnic affiliation. You had the nationes, the gens, and the populus. Now, nationes, of course, not you literally means birth, but nationes is effectively a kind of a political nation, typically of aristocracy, who have a common descent to some kind of, could be mythical, could be real ancestor. Like, for example, the Franks consider themselves to be the descendants of Trojans. Yeah. The, po the Polish consider themselves to be descendants of the Sarmatians. The gens is a particular familial lineage, and finally, the populus is basically the tribal mass. Like because, so like race, race almost it, it almost like maps into the Platonic triad of the soul. Right. You have the right. the nutritive soul, the appetitive soul, and the rational soul. Like if, to have like a full like understanding of who you are, you need to have all three. But in practice today, we only have the lowest part of the soul, the nutritive soul. Like we, why, why is that? We, just real quick, why is Lev summoning something with a crystal? He's a, he's a fucking. He uh, has a huge crystal collection. But, uh, <laughs> but it's essentially, when you see yourself purely in terms of just biological, like genetic lineage, like purely as a kind of, uh, you know. Uh, purely as a kind of germ that's very decadent i mean essentially like ra race is not simply about like genes like it's also about your pedigree it's about your your folkways your kinfolk your ancestry and, you and, cla yourself, and class itself has like an ethno-based estate estate it's very important but americans have no concept of estate i mean well neither do europeans i mean the estates were crushed by the french revolution obviously yes but uh, yes, exactly. but uh you know, like uh, seeing yourself purely as like, uh, like I said, like purely because bi biological race is uh, in of itself um, 
enough in, in of itself uh, nothing more than just a uh, like I said like a germ you know not, nothing else that's why when I uh, I'll, I'll give you all honorary native status when I establish my neo Algonquin empire <laughs> and, and uh, oh. Lev, I uh, saw you zooming in on your beautiful face, so just wanted to say we all appreciated that. Oh well, it was not about the <laughs> and face; the, it and was the about crystal. the crystal. The crystal. Oh, oh what, what, what I was trying to say, because the nutritive soul, like the lowest part of the Platonic triad, refers to like the basic human desires for food and sex. So, like, if you're saying, like, you know, I identify purely with my biological race, you're literally saying. I identify with the fact that my ancestors fucked other ancestors. Like it's it's a purely like vulgar act. Like you know, it doesn't it does not capture like the higher essence of what is one's lineage. Like you're focusing purely on the reproductive aspect, which is just it's very degenerate. But then, but then you have like uh, like spiritualized race theories of and like, like your your, no, no, your no, ancestors. That's where I mean they all end up tying together. You know, it's not a surprise that, you know, effectively Darwinian metaphysics like gelled well with bizarro vitalism. It's just an abstraction. Because... And that's why, you know, the point of emphasizing a Republican for, you know, Republicanism as sort of a form of civil polity um, oriented to a public good is that it's grounded in history and history, or, you know, sort of shapes a community and awards a kind of citizenship through participation and belonging in yes, time yeah. you can't just yeah. grab it out of the sky like you know like some idiot who thinks like oh i like did my genealogy 23 and me and like i guess i'm an irish king like back in the eighth century 23 yeah, me nationalism baby like, no you yeah. could be a moron you know it doesn't mean anything just because you're related to someone you have no and in a weird way it's similar to liberalism in that the by virtue of like not even by being born in a state now, because they, of course, believe that everyone is a world citizen. But by virtue of being born, you are granted certain. Uh, the problem with Darwinism right, is right? that it has it has no concept of being, form, and essence. Like it's yes. purely it's yeah. purely about it's purely about adaptation and selection and drift. So, like essentially, you know, the, and, the, and this the is the irony. And the interesting, is the only way you can talk about it. Is, is by assuming some kind of Aristotelian talos that you have to sort of um, pretend that everyone no, is involved no, in this. Well, there's, there's a. It actually, it actually has no telos. And the interesting thing about it is that, like, the Darwinian conception of race, like, because, you know, people think of race as something fixed, which, at, which it ought to be, like, you know, to have like an have like an answer, you need, to, you need like some reference to the absolute, to the fixed idea. But in Darwinism, liberalism does not present, ra ra yeah. race. Race is constantly changing. Like you know, like you're, there's always new mutations. There's always selection. Mm. There's always adaptation. So like race is the, the the irony is that in Darwinism, race is completely malleable, just like the liberals say. <laughs> so you know, it's yeah. It's totally, so it's totally and that's why a lot the original like social Darwinists were fucking liberals. I mean, yeah, Her the, Herbert Spencer, William yeah. Grant Sumner, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the 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 Fabian Society. Oh, sorry, yeah. Apex, I'm cutting you off, buddy. But yeah, well, the, you know, the interesting thing with with uh, the Fabians as part of this new development on liberalism is that the Darwinists were too dogmatic about these iron laws. Everything was malleable, but then that means anything could go any which way, and exactly. you could just kill yourself. You know, ultimately by <laughs> allowing anything to go right. Yeah. You know, you say laissez-faire no matter what. You know, and then what if the market implodes? 
right? So they 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 have to control it. They have to sort of they it can't be purely malleable. It's almost a self destructive thing. I mean, it's like it's the ugly face of dogmatizing it. But they you know like they quickly. I mean, politically, like nobody obeyed this, and then the ideologues you know quickly fell out of favor. I mean, even like Herbert Spencer. I guess I, I've heard this anecdote where he like he went to Pittsburgh and Carnegie's like, isn't it great here? Look, I did everything you said. And he's like, you know, this place is horrible. <laughs> I never want to live there. Like, I understand why Darwin, people kill themselves. Darwinism is a constant state of terror because at any given point, evolution could become devolution and you would never yeah. know it. And there is, no, there is this, nothing uh, sacred. You need this. Well, obviously, I mean, obviously, I mean, like morality, morality yeah. is purely like an evolutionary process through time. Like there are, there are no like actual moral facts. It's just, uh, you know, right. purely contingent with no, yeah. It's, it's... Well, this is why I'm, uh, and Gio knows about this. This is why I'm of the opinion that it is easier to go down than it is to go up. And that we have a lot of elements that we are fighting against that if we are not in touch with our spirit, if we are not in touch with our inner fire, then eventually the only things that are going to be able to occupy our mind is how do we fucking survive? And at that point, we're not thinking about writing poetry anymore. We're not thinking about any of these high concepts. Now it's pretty yeah, much exactly, just exactly. Do, do or there die. There will be no poetry after the Anthropocene. So Exactly. Like, yeah. By the way, look at that what you will. I've had, I've had the Santa Claus since I was like uh, 11 years old. And I, I just want to play him for you one, one minute. It's still playing? Holy shit. Hold on. Hold on. If you... As Lev beats the shit out of him. When Lev goes from mukbang to crystals to this. Hold on. Hold on. He's going to make another sound. Hold on. Oh my god. Apex, so what are you gonna say let's, before, please? Let's no, let's let's just roll it back. So first Lev is on here showing crystals, okay, and then he's beating the shit out of the Then before Santa he doll. was mukbanging. He's like one of those new age moms who end up abusing their children. <laughs> like like Williamson, like I mean he was he was talking about his grandmother being domestically well, abused. You know, he's continuing I mean, the he started, cycle of abuse. I, I think he's it's continuing the cycle. It's a visual demonstration okay. of his the point. The best saying, part you're saying you're degenerated you're degenerated from these effects of like being reduced to this animal state and then he proceeds to beat up a santa claus and then eat a bunch of food <laughs> like there's no poetry i feel there's like nothing it just left. Oh, has, left has food returned to monkey lev has returned to monkey the, be um, the best part is like every once in a while lev will return to his ethnic origins he'll say like when he was like but why and, would they devalue the gold? <laughs> like, oh, what oh. ethnic origins would those be, Gio? But why would they devalue the gold? I mean, it doesn't. By, by the way, by the way, Gio. By the I'm way, sorry, Gio. Love. Over here in the background, I just wanted to um, uh, get everybody's attention on this, oh, and I'm a little bit blurred out here. So, do you see the knights that are in the background over here? This was drawn. Uh, drawn. This was created by my father, Alexander Polyakov. These are his. Mm. Nut his nutcracker design of a uh, Russian knight. So you can see over here, he's got the spiky ball as well. So what we're going to be doing is there's going to be a bit of a change with the Patreon. And I just want to announce this right now. We are going to heighten the output of what exactly these magnets are because right now i know you guys are used to twenty dollars meaning we're going to have like these you know nice looking um abstract magnets but we are going to take it one step further and here's what we're going to do even though we're still going to have for fifty dollar patrons magnets that are custom now for twenty dollar patrons 
we are going to get a little bit more creative with the magnets. So my father is going to do a definitely legit magnet. He, uh, I mean, we're going to think of some things. Maybe we'll do a, a an inflated lioness. I'm not going to say what kind of lioness, but an inflated lioness. Oh, God, lioness. the fucking null. No, stop it. <laughs> No, no, no. Basically, the point is, the point is, is that we want to get more creative with the kind of magnets that we are going to be offering that have something to do with things that are basically around the Internet culture, around the culture of break the rules. And those are the magnets that we want to give to our patrons. And uh, we look forward to creating those magnets. And $30 patronage is going to get you Geo's beautiful prints. Here we go. Here is the process of creating those prints for all the people who are currently uh who are currently watching this see him in action and like i said before fifty dollars gives you everything including one thing that i don't talk about enough at all is the fact that patrons get an audio version of this episode and any episode uh several days before it's opened up to everybody else so you get first dibs on your own private patron rss feed on our Patreon to listen to those. But anyway, $50 patrons, in addition to all of that stuff, they are also going to get a beautiful painting from Geo in the Bob Ross style. They are also going to get a beautiful coloration of the uh, uh, the series with the angel. Help me out, Geo. What is it called? Warhammer 40K. <laughs> Warhammer. Warhammer. Fuck. Warhammer 40K. So, uh, and also any printout of any of the uh, thumbnails that my father uh, painted. And you will notice immediately which ones those are on our website. So once again, patreon.com slash break the rules. Be there or be square. And that is all I have to say about that. Now that the shilling is done, Apex, you had a point? <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, a while ago. Um, after, you know, the, the, the lev ribbing is done. Um, so <laughs> I had ribs yeah, yesterday, based, by the way. Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the things that I think is really interesting um, is is seeing the and because I wanted to go back to uh, to Nigel's point about um, about the, the the need for community. Um, and, and Geo kind of off your point is, you know, like, how do I fit in as an Italian? Um, is like the new world is very much in a, a scene of, of extreme ethnogenesis. Um, and to some degree, one might look at the, um, this is, this is something that I, I've just kind of been mulling about just today, but almost as in like, the period from 1500 or so to roughly 1950, at least in the United States, was fairly stable-ish in terms of, of ethnogenesis. I mean, you had a lot of groups coming in, but you, you kind of saw these clear boundaries. You don't really see that anymore. Um, and, and in many ways, you kind of see the same pattern of, of strife and conflict just condensed in terms of its time period um but you know so so looking at it is like i don't i i, I truly think that like the whole wignat thing is very much a um a reaction to not having a community to mm -hmm. not having an ethnicity uh to have not having like a clearly defined like these are my people kind of thing um and again like an ethnicity doesn't necessarily have to be a you know, you don't all have to look the same, um, you know, I mean, immigrant, individual immigrants have 
for centuries been accepted into new new groups um it's it, but but i i like i don't tr truthfully i just don't think that like white is a is that meaningful of a category in terms of community i mean like you know if you talk to like minnesota germans like okay like yeah that's there that's kind of a community you know but especially their defense pre World War one but I mean, it used, to, it used to be, be the... when, uh, you know, like you had the whole Americanization movement of the 1920s. Yeah, after really mm -hmm. World War One, really. But also also because fuck of all Wilson, the, like, fr the fraternal... Oh, yeah, fuck Wilson. He, he ruined the Habsburg... He, he, he despoiled the Habsburg Empire. Fuck him. And, uh, but, uh, you know... Oh, man. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, there were all sorts of, like, fraternal lodges, like the Elks Club, you know, Rotary Clubs and so forth, which sort of, you know, they were pretty much based implicitly on this, uh, you know, wasp-adjacent identity, not purely waspish, but, you know, like, there was very much this kind of uh, Anglo-Protestant fraternal solidarity, which could partially assimilate certain, you know, Southern Europeans on the margins, you know, to the extent they could be assimilated. So white was meaning it was a meaningful category for some time, but uh, now it's well, well white. You know, that's why the it's now now it's a, now it's basically white basically means satanic. That's what it means. So there you go. Well, I mean, it's just it's yeah, just inverting the same paradigm um, that that there was a debate among people, but you know, and, and it ultimately goes to the more cultural aspect because it's more stabilizing for markets. But if you racialize it to the point that it's almost ontological, where you have those racial charts between you have the top is the white Anglo-Saxon and down it's like the Slav and then down another level is the Chinaman, you know, and it's just, it's just a chain of being. Well, that makes it hard for establishing markets and sort of allowing, you know, at least the justification for why these people should govern themselves. I mean, Chomsky so, had, had a quote to the exact same effect, actually. But, you know, World War One was effectively blowing open... Uh, you know the German, German, Austrian, like you know, and then Ottomans by um, extension. You know, like the, the the closed markets and the hostility to Germany, and the, you know, divided British foreign policy in the 19th century. Um, also, dividing you know British foreign policy towards America was: can you co-opt America? Can you co-opt Germany? Or do you need to basically try to blow open? Um, these societies to get access to the, their markets and the collapse oh, yeah, like of Germany the... and the collapse of the Habsburgs was effectively just mm. trying in you know, the creation and carving out of these ethno states is to destroy the states that existed and and then replace them with just confusion and anarchy. The roundtable groups in Britain, America, like you, you had this very popular idea by, I think his name was William Steed. You know, he wrote a book. I think he died on the Titanic, actually. But he wrote a book shortly before his death called The Americanization of the World. And he the idea, which as far as I can tell, was influential among certain aspects of the English like elite, that, uh, you know, the United States is the rightful successor to the English nation and ought to be aided in its uh, quest for hegemony. So by and large, like the, the English basically, in a sense, they... They transferred their ethnic rights to the Americans, much as the Senate transferred its rights to the Emperor with the, the Lex Regio. Right. Well, I mean, but, and that's why that's why it's like, it's this interesting arrangement because you know over the 19th century you have you know this deflagging uh, you know main northern backers of the Democratic Party 
who are basically Anglo-Saxonists that believe in this joint yeah. partnership of the British Empire and America. But then, you know, by Wilsonian internationalists, it's the, the, the shoe gets put on the other foot. And it's, you know, actually, I think America needs to be the suit, the uh, not an equal partner or a junior partner. But now, you know, we are the bearers of the Anglo-Saxon mission and Britain can, you know, be our partner. Well, there's actually a lot of Anglophobia in American history as well, which has been yeah. sweat, which has been memory hold. But like it was that's right, like that's there, right. There were like yeah. there were some like I think I I don't recall the exact name, but like they were like in New York City in like the 1840s and 50s. There were like these like massive uh, anti-English riots and like uh, you know theaters and like uh, stage Wait, so plays. Who, who were they done? Who were the anti-English riots uh, perpetuated by mostly? I don't remember the details. It's it's in my I have like well, a this vast, is, this is some I of have so ethnic, many notes. You know, there was Irish hostility to the English. There was German hostility to the English. But then there was um, no. But, but like there was the, also the, Jacks, the, the Jacksonian Democrats hated England because it was a symbol of like aristocracy. Right? It was like it was against yeah. like well, yeah, the, and that was like with the central bank and all that that uh, yeah Jackson, yeah the, uh, get, yeah, yeah the getting rid of central but, bank. The I mean, there, yeah. there's another interesting thing for me, which I don't know, like it it goes on the realm of fancy in a way. But um, if we think about people like, uh, for example. Uh, what is his name? He was in uh, John D. So if we have somebody mm. like John D. who coined the term British Empire, and there is this whole undercurrent of mystical thought having to do with how he laid the framework for what is the resurgence through first England and then through America, the resurgence of the antediluvian civilizations that existed before that were pretty much throughout the entire world before the great cataclysm and how now is a repeat of what happened there. And again, this goes on much more mystical road uh, that I don't really have any uh, evidence to uh, bring out here for. But uh, I have always wondered about like how much are we repeating possible things that have happened before as far as just the amount of organization that it took to create some of these monuments that are still there right now and you have pyramids in china you know you have pyramids in south america and um egypt obviously and they look very different especially like the uh sphinx temple the design looks very different than the uh hieroglyphic uh designs that you would see in uh, egypt later on so to me like a lot of these things including like the fishmen, you know coming out of the sea just like uh, the tale of jonah you know coming out of the fish's mouth into this new society like uh how much of that talks about like the seafaring nation that was uh, left over after the cataclysm that brought civilization to people all around the world wherein we restarted things and they were looked upon as gods and uh, are we in a similar position to what they may have had to endure centuries before when the cataclysm actually uh, started to happen lads I have enjoyed it learned a lot um, <laughs> I do have to run Apex, um, thank you so much for coming yeah, in, brother. Like, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Eat, so. um, all right. But sure. no, I enjoyed listening to it for sure. And Nigel, Cal, really appreciate a it. Apex, I want I want to plug your stuff. So where could uh, where could people find you? Uh, I am writing on Substack. So it's called apexesnotes.substack.com. Um, catch me there. That's or follow me on Twitter. Apex. Go there right now. Here I'm putting it in the chat. Everybody, go to apexnotes.substack.com <laughs> and uh, follow Apex on Twitter. Thank you so much for coming in, buddy. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Have a good night. You too. Thank you. See Peace. you, buddy. Yeah.
Uh, so, so the the riot, the anglophobic riot I was talking about is, I believe, the Astor Place riot of 1849. It was at an opera house in Manhattan. Interesting. And mm. appa- apparently, uh huh. Apparently, British actors dominated the American theatrical scene, and there was a kind of like nationalistic. Um, antipathy by like new england transcendentalists but yeah like there was an actual like riot in 1849 like the astor place astor opera house in manhattan some of these riots are are you know because the the transcendentalists are in the main anglophiles and also let me add that uh there was still like even after the louisiana purchase and everything there was still quite a lot of like uh even after 1812 there were many like uh colonial conflicts between Britain and America, particularly in Central America, because from what I recall, like the Brits controlled Honduras and Belize for quite a while. So like in yeah. you know, the yeah. Americans and, wanted and, uh, a, canal, a canal through like Nicaragua and the British were against, there were like treaties in 1850. So that, you know, there was a lot of I like mean, anglophobic... The, the, uh, the cultural yeah. manifestation of that control is the fact that soccer is so, uh, so popular in Latin America and that empanadas are a, a common food in many South American and Central American countries, which are just uh, empanadas are turnovers and soccer is a British sport. So, yeah. you know, it, the, the trade policies that dominate, I mean, that's, that's the key thing that the British liberals discover in the 19th century. You can dominate countries um, without actually formally conquering them. If you can control their market and their money supply, you can control them. And, you know, there are even jokes oh. where the foreign minister of Uruguay at one point, uh, you know, he they, they, the joke was that he didn't even know Spanish. Uh, he, the only oh, language he spoke was English. Like, uh, I think, like, some of the, some of the, like, Hanoverian monarchs, like, I think it was George the First. he barely spoke English, like, he mostly right. spoke French. Uh, well, that's, yeah, that's the same the with the Russian could, uh, nobility as well. Like, the yeah, Russian no, but, nobility, no, but, they only spoke no, but French. That, no, but that was no, that was normal in those days. Like, for example, the the Academy of Sciences in Berlin spoke French, not German. In fact, uh, you know, there's this like famous essay by Antoine de Rivarol, you know, which is which is about uh, celebrating. Rivarol was like a monarchist, by the way, but he wrote this uh, essay like celebrating the French language as the greatest tongue in the world. And like French school children still study this to this day. Well, but you know, there, he, there, there's he, a kind of cultural purchase he, on it, but the point in Uruguay he, was that, that the on. ministers of government, you know, that they were so in bed with London that they didn't even need to know their native tongues. But uh, Riverall wrote this essay as part of a contest hosted by the Academy in Berlin. So like he, he was writing an essay about, you know, the superiority of the French language for a German inst- institution right, there you go like pretty funny but russia as well like you know saint petersburg academy of sciences like full of germans and also wrote more, largely in latin not not in like uh, yeah so like but, you know, latin was the lingua franca everywhere basically up until like 1800 so like the croatian the croatian parliament didn't speak croatian for the first time until like what was it the 1850s or something like they all spoke in latin hungary as well national vernaculars were low status if you if you were like a nobleman you, you, had, you had to speak latin and you always wrote in latin for any kind of international correspondence like that, that was how it was now of course we in a sense i mean english has taken its place which isn't too bad you know it's, it's always good to have like a lingua franca to unify things you know yeah 
I'm just thinking about the giant red-headed girlfriend now, because somebody wrote a comment about uh, red-headed Nephilim, and now I'm thinking <laughs> there was like this red-headed girl, you know, with a you know beautiful uh, red hair everywhere, up and down, and uh, all around, and uh, you know you would just uh, you know you would just lay down on her hair and just. Uh, fall asleep while looking at the uh, sun setting and the sun just as red as she is. You know, that is that is a fantasy, guys. Anyway, uh, I think we are going to be wrapping it up right here. We have had a yeah, fa yeah. fantastic conversation. I really appreciate Nigel, Carl, Gio, and I really appreciate all the guests that we have had uh, before. We have had Alex Diamond. Follow Alex on Twitter, Dr. Callum Watson. We have had Roseanne. It's actually interesting, like, uh, her surname is Parent, and she has seven kids. I just find, find that's, you know, it's like when you uh, name your son Jeeves, he becomes a butler. You know, like, there's something uh, something to be said about that. Uh, but anyway, sh uh, follow her, uh, Farming A. Uh, that is her um, husband's uh, video blog about starting a hobby farm in Canada with the chickens and everything. That is awesome. And uh, check out Cal's, uh, uh, your blog, Let let the Rebel, Let the let Rebel there be justice. justice. Oh, let that, yes, th thank you. Let There Be Justice. I am putting that in the chat as well for everybody to check out. Be sure to check out his blog. And uh, let's see, as far as uh, Nigel goes, you also have a, you have a WordPress, Carlsbad1819. So please follow him here. Mm -hmm. And of course, Giovanni... and come back, both of you. Yes, absolutely. And of course, Giovanni Panacchietti, Geo's Content Corner. That is where you go right now for the WordPress. And uh, let us know if there are any updates having to do with um, uh, your uh, Canadian government-sponsored uh, uh, content site coming online soon. If oh yeah, any... I have to actually start editing it. I've just been—I don't know—I've just been lost this past month. But hopefully well, I'll get back on the horse. Well, I look forward to seeing you. Buff writes, the magnets are listening devices. Shh, don't tell anyone. And, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, of course, follow Geo on YouTube, Giant Art Productions. I linked it in the chat as well. Yeah, and, and of course, right after this, I'm going to drop my new video, uh, a th Twitter reading thread. So by check, check it out. So <laughs> oh, and also before we go, here's what's going down. Here's Crackalackin'. So... Uh, I am going to do a uh, free-for-all Thursday this week, not Friday, Thursday. So let's get a bunch of people together. Let me know who's available. I want to bring uh, I want to bring some people on to talk about uh, what is what is going down right now. And uh, Thursday, February 18th. No, before that. Holy shit, before that. Um, let's see over here. We have uh, Tuesday, February 16th. MK Ultra Money, Sewing Discourse. And we are going to have Athena. We are going to have... Uh, we are going to have the return of uh, Noah, Noah Hugbox. He is coming back for that. Ooh. And uh, ho hopefully we're going to be able to have a verse in as well. And for mm. China, this is very interesting for China. There's going to be a uh, China episode Thursday, February 18th. And I am going to have a, a member of the Falun Gong, a member of the uh, uh, the Epoch Times, writer for the Epoch Times. Uh, she is going to join us uh, as well uh -oh. as... As well as a Uyghur, we're gonna have a Uyghur uh, lady coming in, and maybe she's watching. We need this okay. Right we now. need my friend. We need my friend Trashlich, who is a Han supremacist, 
to also come on that panel. That would be great. So they will argue the shit out of each other. So <laughs> please, please invite, please invite. That would be great. And also uh, Tuesday, February 23, this is where we're going to have the Cyberpunk stream, I believe. Thursday, February 25, Psychedelic stream. We are going to have Owen Cyclops back along with DMT Quest talking about the psychedelics. And nice. uh, there, there we go. Guys, thank you so much for watching. I really appreciate it. Gentlemen, please come again. Both of please you. Please come again.